This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And happy Wednesday to you. Top of the morning to you. You're almost there, folks. Some of you will be taking time off for the holidays. I think tomorrow's our last day. And uh, so we got so much to talk about. We will even be bringing up holidays that start, for example, Festivus is celebrated on the 23rd. It, it begins to be celebrated on the 23rd. Is I that, believe so. Yeah, but we, we're, cele- we're celebrating today since we won't be here on the 23rd. Yeah. And I again, I'm not even big on Festivus, so I'm excited that Jeff's here. He's helped pull some some clips from Seinfeld, I think, to help us with this. Yeah. So this is uh, George Costanza's dad explaining how Festivus came to be. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I realized <laughs> there had to be another way. A new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. A Festivus for the rest of us. As he was as he was raining down blows, I think he said. So for people out there who are tired of the the consumerism that a lot of people associate with Christmas. Now instead, you celebrate with an unadorned aluminum festivus pole. Mm-hmm. It's just a pole. Practices such as the airing of grievances and feats of strength and the labeling of easily explainable events as festivus miracles. <laughs> so you just take a, a, any day event that, you know, I, I got here to work today. That's a festivus miracle. Yeah. Wow. It's a very simple holiday. So we will be celebrating festivus, of course. It's also don't make your bed day. This is the day you don't have to make your bed. I celebrate that every day. Well, does your wife make your bed? Yes, but she's the last one out of it, so. Yeah, I was going to say, my wife's still in the bed, so. Yeah, my wife. kind of rude to make it while she's still in it, right? Well, my wife does that. My wife makes the bed while I'm sleeping. That's rude. You know what? I make it with her still in it. I just make sure the covers are pulled up completely over her, and then usually I don't even have to touch them. You've got to be careful. The woman's got to breathe. It's also Humbug Day, which allows everyone that's preparing to Christmas to vent their frustration. See, it almost seems like Humbug Day is against Festivus Day. It, I mean, it's, it's what perpetuates Festivus. You can't be a fighter and then, you know, you're, you're going to create more of a need for Festivus. Brother. There's a lot going on today. Let's look on the bright side day. We've got so much to talk about. Uh, also on the show, we will be talking about the unilateral use of power from a president. A lot of people have been down on Barack Obama because he seems to use executive orders a lot, kind of the unilateral use of his power as president. Is it normal? Has he used it more than other presidents? And, uh, you know, it's there's a downside to all of this presidential, um, what do they call them, you know, uh, mandates when they just write a letter of president. What do they call those, Terry? President... Executive orders? Executive orders. Because the minute the new president comes in, he can get rid of all the executive orders. Mm-hmm. Which will probably be day one of Donald Trump's work. Like, there's a process, but yeah, it's, they just 
undo everything that's been done. Undo. It's like do-over. Remember when you were a kid? You could just do-over, and you have to do the play-over. Mm-hmm. He'll get to all that right after he sends Hillary to prison. I think he said he's not doing that. They said that doesn't matter because it's not – they're not running for office anymore. He, I think he says everything I said while I was running, don't necessarily believe it <laughs> until I bring it up again as president. Right. Ah, so much fun. So much to look at. We'll get to all of that fun. Um, but first and foremost to the headlines, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President-elect Donald Trump's top defense priorities do not include Russia, according to a Pentagon memo obtained by foreign policy. The document identifies that Trump's administration wants to focus on defeating the Islamic State militants, eliminating defense budget caps, developing cyber strategy, and encouraging efficiency. Despite how, as foreign policy described, a top cabinet official of the Defense Department and the intelligence community cited Russia as the foremost threat because of its vast nuclear arsenal, sophisticated cyber capabilities, and recently modernized military, and willingness to challenge the U.S. and its allies in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and other regions, the Trump priorities make no mention of Russia. In other news, the U.S. Treasury Department has added seven Russians as, and dozens of companies to its sanctions list because of Moscow's activity, activities in Crimea and Ukraine. The addition of new names provokes an, provoked an angry response from the Kremlin, with Deputy Foreign Minister vowing to get revenge. We will be expanding our lists. We will see how we can respond asymmetrically. Whoa! Whoa! That sounds scary. So you have the new... Or the current administration with new sanctions and the incoming administration, eh, not really on the list. So yeah. a little conflict. We've got of, other things to do. Of priorities there. Four more officials were charged Tuesday in connection with the lead-contaminated water crisis in Flint, Michigan. As Michigan Attorney General Bill Shulett announced, two of the city's former emergency managers and two water plant officials will face felony charges of, quote, false pretense and conspiracy. Mm. The emergency managers, who will be the highest-ranking officials to be charged thus far over the water crisis, will also face misdemeanor charges for misconduct in office and willful neglect of duty. Boy. People still want the governor of Michigan's head on this, but apparently that may not happen. Let the man keep his head. Good to have friends. And finally, Houston Texans rookie safety K.J. Dillon got stuck with the dinner bill on Sunday following his team's comeback win against the Jaguars and the price tag he had to pay was astounding. What? On Twitter, he posted a photo of the check, which rounded out to a cool $16,255. cow. That's not, tips not included in that, by the way. Boy. The closer look reveals seven orders of sea bass at three, and lobster, about $350. $150 or $105 worth of filet mignon. Mm. One Caesar salad, $12.95. Apparently he had the salad. He had a twelve dollar salad and salad. picked up a sixteen thousand dollar tax. Most incredibly of all was the seven thousand seven hundred dollars worth of alcohol. Holy cow! Seven thousand dollars, about three hundred fifty dollars a glass. That is crazy. Now, why did he have to pick it up? He's a rookie, and apparently, this is how they. This happens every year. This seems like NFL, hazing. NFL rookies. Usually, what happens is you take like the five rookies on the team. Except I think he might be the only one that's still with the team, so well, he had yeah. to, you know, front the entire bill. But it seems like the the rookies um, have the least amount of money. Well, it says he was a fifth round draft pick. Yeah, two point six million dollar contract includes a two hundred thirty five thousand dollars signing bonus. 
salary of three hundred seventy-four thousand dollars. So I mean, he's making some money. Yeah, but he's going to be okay. It's still a sixteen thousand dollars. Can one you imagine check, if bam. you right now were given a sixteen thousand dollar bill to pay wow. for dinner, and you only ate the salad? Would you wish you mm. had eaten more? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I always wish I had eaten more. Interesting. Boy, glad I'm not a rookie anymore. <laughs> Who's the Well, Jeff's the rookie on the show. We ought to go have a little Christmas lunch today. Right. And let the rookie pay. That idea is just the worst. Wow. We I, used to be able to play that. that. Yeah. We don't need to play it if you're going to do voices. Hmm. Hey, I had somebody talk to us uh, talk to me yesterday. I really? remember the day that I met like, Andy Dufresne. Directly at you? He talked or at me. Like he, talking, he says, can I, can I ask you something about your show? And I'm like, sure. Uh-oh. And he said, okay, you know Jeff? Hmm. Yeah. I go, yeah, I know Jeff. He's like, when Jeff talks and you talk, it sounds the exact same. Mm-hmm. I only think that's true when you're not here and I'm hosting. That might be. He said, I think is, I sound is he trying to sound like you? And I'm like, no, that's just – he just has a great voice. Wait a minute. Is that a compliment pipes. to me or a compliment to yourself? Exactly. It works both ways. Mm-hmm. So somehow we have to start differentiating when I'm speaking, me, Matt Townsend, right. and when Jeffrey's speaking, Jeffrey Simpson. So Matt? Yes? Talk a little lower, lower okay. register. I am right now because my lungs are Jeff, deflated. I can't, I can't get as low as you can. Why don't you why don't you start talking? You know that voice you do when you um when you talk a little bit like a mother? Do the mother voice for me for a second. Well, if you really insist that I start talking like Perfect. this, then I, 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 okay. I'll do just that. You know, they have been saying that we need a woman on the show. There you go. There we go. Okay. So Perfect. problem solved. Yeah. This is Matt Townsend's voice and this is Jeff Simpson's voice. Happy Festivus, Matt. There we go. And Terry? How are you doing? There you go. See? Perfect. We're, I think Show we just cleared, cleared up all confusion right And there. no need to have a female co-host or whatever. Female. So does that mean I get paid more or no, 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 do I get paid less no, because I'm a voice, woman? Wrong voice. Oh, sorry. Try that again in the female voice. Yeah. That idea is just the worst. That's Martin. Is that the Freeman voice? Morgan. Morgan Freeman. Yeah, it's not ah, closer to Martin Freeman than it is Morgan Freeman. Martin's, <laughs> Martin's his brother. Morgan. Yeah, Morgan. Actually, a Martin person. Martin Freeman is Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. Oh. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So from now on, I'll use the deep voice. You use the mom's voice. And Terry, just bring your same voice. Yep. I'll okay. just be me. <sighs> See, why do we need meetings? We just had one. We just had one. It was on great. The show. Yeah. Problem solved. 30 seconds out the door. Queen Elizabeth uh, is a little ill. She's canceling all of her traditional Christmas events. She's sick. Yeah. There's a, there's a region of England that Christmas will not begin correctly for them this year. Man. It says that her arrival at her holiday retreat is the, uh, the ushering in of Christmas for this whole region. Yeah. And now she won't be making that trip, so they're going to be at a loss this year. That's not good. What about Prince Charles? Maybe he can just fly in on his ears. Is he still around? He's around. Hey, uh, Hillary Clinton, 2,864,974 votes. Nice. Good job. Almost 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. She cleaned up in California, which really yeah. helped push her over the top there. It's, it's kind of interesting, don't you feel, that California is 
seemingly so irrelevant mm. in the political process. Right? I mean, we don't even wait till they till they close their polls before right. half this country's done. Well, they close the poll and they just hand it off. Yeah. California's Democrat, move on. Boy, three million almost votes. That's that's going to create a lot of people saying, when they already are saying, we've yeah. got to get rid of the the electoral college. Except it's not going to happen until a Republican gets two million more votes and the Democrat right. wins the electoral college. And like, this system works awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Uh, what other things do we need to be paying attention to? Um, what about you? Christmas, right? Yeah, I mean, I hear There's it's coming. This, this thing's coming. What happens if you get a gift you don't want? Well, I just smile. I say thank you. And then I hand it to my wife and say, let's return that. An etiquette expert mm-hmm. gives us some tips. Okay, good. All right. So take some notes here. Here's how you, when you get that sweater that's ridiculous, and in my <laughs> case, never fits over your head. Yeah, yeah. That's always the, bad. I I don't, no. I, I can't do turtlenecks. Then you do, what you do is you, that's why you hang it on your shoulders. Yeah. It's just, ugh. my wife gets me sweaters because she goes, you look so good in the sweater. And I yeah. go, I don't wear them. Okay. So, um. What do you do if you were expecting, it says jewelry, but you got a vacuum? Uh, don't ever, by the way, get your wife a vacuum. Right. What do you do if you're expecting jewelry, but you get a vacuum? It says the correct etiquette, no matter how the gift makes you feel, to always be gracious, mm, smile, oh, and you. say thank you. The vacuum sucks as a gift, by the way. Oh, they, they're incredibly, they've got a lot of suck. And then, and then they ask the expert, would you... Ever recommend asking for a gift receipt if you the real reason to return or exchange the gift that you didn't like? What do you think? Is it proper to ask for a receipt? Well, if it doesn't fit, you have to you must acquit, right? Yeah, but what if you just don't like it? Well, then I would still ask for a receipt, and I said I don't think it's fit. It's it doesn't fit. I don't think you can ask for one. I think they have to include it. But all you would have to do if you if you can't ask for the receipt, you just go exchange it. Well, that's what they're saying here is, is you don't necessarily need the receipt in every case. Yeah. And you can just go take it back to – if you can find out where it was purchased. That's the hard part. And exchange it. Mm-hmm. Boy. That's etiquette things it's making tough. Christmas a lot. So right? I'll have some more tips as we go on throughout the morning. Good. Well, we uh, need I, it. I don't want us to, to get too far ahead of ourselves. So one, always be gracious. Always say thank you. Two, see if you can get the receipt, but you might just be able to return it without causing a big uproar. Yeah. Do you have a receipt I could use? I could yeah. have? I might need to take it back. It's not the right size. If, if Aunt Meredith got you something that you really don't want, maybe there's a way to save her feelings and yeah. get something better. Yeah. Plus, I didn't even know I had an Aunt Meredith. Right. These are important things to know. Oh, by the way, before you go to your Christmas party, find out who all your aunts are. Just some other advice from the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you have a healthier, happier holiday season. We will take a break when we come back. We're going to be talking about uh, presidential power and the unilateral use of their power. Will it? Uh, does it help or will it come back to bite them? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. As holding with tradition, President-elect Donald Trump will continue to use the executive unilateral powers to shape and remake America, just as President Obama did. But what are executive unilateral powers and where do they come from? 
Here to speak with us today about this topic is Dr. Mark Major, a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Penn State University, and he um, is a, uh, is also the author of The Unilateral Presidency and the News Media, The Politics of Framing Executive Power. Dr. Mark Major, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you, Dr. Matt. This is a fun um, topic, especially today, because President Obama is now blocking offshore oil and gas drilling in the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans using, I guess, uh, actually, he's using a provision of a 1953 law that gave him the ability to do that. But a lot of people have been pushing back on President Obama and how much uh, how much he's used these executive um, orders. Talk to us. Is he overdoing it? Has he overdone it? Is he doing it more than past presidents? So when we look at President Obama in a comparative context, when we're comparing him to previous presidents, it's a, a fairly complicated picture. So when we refer to presidential unilateral powers, that is really this umbrella term um, referring to more than 30 presidential uh, actions that are available to the chief executive when they want to act alone. We often just refer to them as executive orders, which is one certainly important um, part or one important tool of these unilateral actions. So if we're talking just specifically about executive orders, then we've actually seen a great deal of constraint by Mm. President Obama. Um, He has issued, in terms of annual orders that he's issued in the eight years, uh, he actually compares to Grover Cleveland. Um, So he doesn't even really compare to the frequency that more recent presidents like uh, Bill Clinton or the Bushes, um, the, the frequency that they were using. However, when we uh, step back and look at the total amount of executive actions from President Obama, then we see somebody who has really uh, taken up the, uh, the reins of the unilateral presidency with quite a, a great deal of energy. Hmm. So compared to President George W. Bush, um, President Obama... Um, up until, I believe, last month, which was the, like the, the last count, um, he's issued uh, more than 2,000 presidential actions. And these you know, range from executive orders to proclamations to memorandum and on and on and on. So it's um, th- so there is a difference between an executive order and an executive action memorandum um, is – I guess that it seems like if if you're doing a lot of this, and I guess a lot of the presidents have been trying to usurp more power to to make their office more powerful, which would be, I guess, not using the other branches of government and instead just you know writing signing their signature. Is this is it working? Is the is the office of president becoming more powerful? Yeah, overall, yes. And the the presidency is in this weird position because constitutionally, if we just look at the text of the Constitution, presidents really aren't supposed to do all that much. Uh, Most of the powers that they're assigned, uh, such as the commander-in-chief power, uh, most of those powers, though, are often shared with at least one chamber 
of Congress. Hmm. So when we look at the, the constitutional position of the presidency, it's a very constrained position. However, uh, in the practice of American politics, we expect a great deal from our presidents. In fact, you know, as they campaign, as we saw, you know, over the last few election cycles, it's just normal for presidents to say, well, you know, I'm going to do X, Y and Z. And, you know, they promise us the world. Well, once they get into office, they realize that, uh, you know, if you want to work with Congress and especially if you uh, are President Obama and you're facing a, a Congress that just absolutely does not want to work with you. And yet you have all these expectations that the, um, you know, that you've uh, promised to the public, then presidents start to, you know, look elsewhere to see what can I do to try to get the, the ball rolling here. Hmm. And that's where President Obama certainly is nothing new. He's just really living in the shadow of uh, both Roosevelt's, both Teddy and FDR who really got the ball rolling in terms of shifting um, the presidency from sort of backseat to uh, really being the central agenda setter of our political system, when constitutionally that is supposed to be Congress. Right. Does um, Why would they choose executive orders um, or any, I guess, type of executive action uh, over just, you know, moving Congress, partnering with Congress, communicating with Congress? So it just depends on the issue. Uh, so you reference the uh, the oil drilling ban yeah. that they just recently announced. Uh, that was actually the, the president was using a part of uh, a law. So this is where Congress can and the courts can both aid and abet the unilateral presidency. So they often will include in legislation uh, powers for the president to act alone. Or presidents, of course, may, you know, review a law and say, you know, what, this section of this law, this grants me this power to act alone. As presidents have used the this rare 1906 Antiquities Act that modern-day presidents use to act unilaterally to declare national monuments or parks. And, you know, it's a way to uh, protect uh, land throughout the United States. Um, So in some cases, they can use legislation to empower themselves to uh, act alone. In most cases, though, it's usually uh, a response to Congress just not wanting to work with the president. And unilateral powers are a great, uh, great way for presidents to, you know, set the agenda. And in some cases to try to even shift the status quo hmm. to where, you know, they are setting the agenda. And now they put the ball in Congress's court. And uh, you know, allow them or not to uh, to act. Is 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 it a weaker? Does it have a weaker stand? I mean, it seems like now with uh, this transition to President Trump's um, presidency, it's there. It, all he'd have to do is you know repeal all of these executive orders. Um, and with and is it different when there's when he's got also both sides of Congress on his side uh, to to pass legislation as well? 
Yeah, so Trump will be walking into, uh, at least through, from the perspective of presidents, he'll, he'll be walking into uh, a, a very favorable situation. So we often think about when presidents do act alone, intuitively we think, oh, it's because it's a situation like the current administration. You know, they're facing an opposition Congress. They don't, you know, Republicans just reflexively don't want to work with the president. So, of course, you know, this compels them to act alone. What research finds is that presidents are more likely to act alone under a unified government when they're basically when they are with their uh, comrades rather than Hmm. uh, opponents. Yeah. And the reason why is because they know they're not going to face any sort of backlash. And we've seen that for President Obama, which is why his unilateral actions, at least in terms of executive orders, it's dropped in his second term because uh, throughout his second term, he's faced in uh, opposition Congress for Mm. his first two uh, out of four years in his first term. uh, He faced a unified government and was issuing uh, orders more frequently. It's it it really um, I I guess it it at some point they need to be working together and I guess kind of the old world politics where we could sit down and hammer out a, an agreement and negotiate with an opposing uh, party is that are those days gone I mean do have we lost the art of creating true negotiated you know legislation. Uh, well, there's a, a great book I, I encourage um, all of your listeners to read. It's by Julian Zelizer, and he's a political historian at Princeton. And it's called The Fierce Urgency of Now. And it's about President Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society legislation. And what he argues is uh, for this more Congress-centric story when we talk about Great Society legislation but uh, one, of the, one of the points he makes is this idea of the good old days when, you know, Democrats and Republicans could reach across the aisle mm-hmm. and work together. That is uh, in large part a myth. Oh, is but it? Yes, we, ha- we have had bipartisan cooperation uh, in the past, but not as much as we would like to think. So uh, in the case of Great Society legislation and what we find, which is typical for most presidents, not all, but this is more of the case, it's when they face a very favorable political landscape. So for Lyndon B. Johnson, for example, with the Great Society legislation, most of that came through the 89th Congress. And that is just a very slim two-year window of opportunity. Hmm. Uh, if, if we look to President Obama as well, most of his significant legislation, especially uh, domestic policy, was within his first two years in office when he was with uh, a unified government, when he had Democrats uh, running Congress. So, yes, there, you know, there are examples of, of bipartisan cooperation, but Congress, really the, the status quo of Congress is gridlock, hmm. deadlock. Yeah. You know, you should expect uh, nothing to occur 
and uh, you know that is that is the way Congress is wired, and that's really just the the whole architecture of our political system is this deep inherent status quo bias that's built into the system. Wow, interesting learning. Um, yeah, gridlock. It, it's slow and steady. Make sure that this thing doesn't tip over, I guess. Uh, we, right. We're going to take a break. More with Dr. Mark Major as he tries to explain to us the use of unilateral powers in the office of the presidency. When we come back, I want to find out uh, if, if any legislation done unilaterally as a in a presidential executive order some successes. Do we have any success stories from such mandates uh, from a past president? Stick with us. Interesting insights. Maybe President Obama was much more, you know, normal than we may have heard. Not as extreme in his use of some of these orders. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Mark Major, a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Penn State University and also the author of the book, The Unilateral Presidency and the News Media, The Politics of Framing Executive Power. Dr. Major, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Matt. Do you feel like the media, I mean, I, I guess it's you, you have all of these, uh, maybe right now, anti-Obama uh, you know, not news outlets, but just talking heads. Um, and they throw out the idea of executive orders. He's just he's just using executive orders. But you you've explained it's a lot more complicated than just one form of of presidential unilateral power. There's orders, there's actions, there's memorandum. Um, but overall, I guess you're saying he oh, President Obama has hasn't used as many executive orders as past people, past presidents, but he has had more maybe executive actions. Yes, that's correct. So compared to President George W. Bush, who, uh, if we're you know looking at all 30 types of unilateral actions, um, had something close to maybe 1,800 unilateral actions, and uh, President Obama has already surpassed uh, more than 2,000 executive actions. Mm. And these can include executive orders, uh, memorandum, presidential notices, determinations, proclamations. Uh, again, there's a whole list. And, and this is actually including the stuff that we are able to document. So presidents also have executive agreements and national security directives and many of those are classified for, you know, years. Yeah, they slip uh, well, that in. Well into uh, uh, after they leave the office. Is a presidential pardon part of these executive actions? Yes. So we often don't include pardons and, and commutations along with this because that's actually one of the few, if only, unilateral powers that is explicitly permitted in the Constitution. So presidents do have this constitutional power, this enumerated power, listed power, to pardon individuals or 
groups, and this goes back to, you know, the founding of the Constitutional Convention, where they thought during times of revolts or rebellion, that rather than have the deliberative body Congress, you know, get together and say, hey, should we issue these people pardons? It may be more effective if you assign that power that, you know, we borrowed from King George. Let's give that to the president. So during, you know, very critical periods, uh, such as a rebellion, a president could step in and say, lay down your arms. You know, I will pardon all of you. Let's work this out. Mm. Um, And uh, yeah, so uh, President Obama actually has been uh, very progressive in this area. And we've seen more and more where uh, through pardons and and commutations, especially for nonviolent drug offenders, uh, we're seeing President Obama following um, in the path of some of his fellow Democratic presidents like uh, Bill Clinton, who are, you know, really making this commentary on our criminal justice system that, you know, this is. This is a, a conversation that we need to have nationally about, you know, the merit of some of these laws. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we, we have uh, seen President Obama um, act. Uh, I mean, for some criminal justice groups, certainly he's not acting enough. You know, they, they want to see more pardons and, and commutations. It seems like they've the president. it seems like they've politicized. This unilateral power. I I remember when Senator Obama was running for president, he talked about how he was a constitutional scholar and the presidency – the presidents historically are trying to usurp power that isn't necessarily theirs to take. And then when he became president, he started usurping power or using his executive unilateral powers. Um, Is is it is it just over politicized? Is that what's going on? Or is there a real – issue about presidents overreaching because the Supreme Court has, you know, swatted back a little bit on Obama and some of his moves. Right. It's both. It's both. There is a genuine fear. And, uh, you know, 50 percent is just this concern over the proper role of the presidency in our political system. And then the other 50 percent is just pure crass partisanship. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, with uh, then Senator Obama, you know, one of his biggest concerns with the Bush administration was they're concentrating too much power into the executive branch. But, you know, as the old adage goes, where you stand depends on where you're sitting. Mm. And when you are an opposition senator, uh, it's really easy to criticize the sitting presidents and their use of presidential powers. But once you get into office and when you're facing a Republican Party that wants nothing to do with you, then, uh, you know, those powers, uh, the ability to just, as President Kennedy said, uh, you know, with just the stroke of a pen, you can get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, of course, the, uh, the position that President Obama faced and, he certainly uh, embraced those those powers, but this is uh, the the fear or, or the concern really dates back to uh, again the the founding uh, of this country and certainly during the Constitutional Convention 
of the concerns over a chief executive. And, you know, are we really just creating another aristocracy or are we creating another, you know, chief magistrate or are we going to create, uh, you know, a president that is going to be constrained by the other two branches of government? But uh, especially with Obama, uh, we often find when a new party comes in and when they take over the White House, the opposition just becomes constitutional scholars. You know, everybody finds right. a sort of fidelity to the Constitution, but it's really just because our team is not in the White House and, you know, we want to be acting unilaterally because when our guy does it, then we tend to favor uh, the policies that they're implementing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when it's the other party, then, you know, the, the Constitution is being torn to shreds. Is um, Does it all change now that President Obama is on his way out, uh, I guess, in that lame duckish type of status? Does he just mm-hmm. start tossing out a lot of unilateral moves historically? Is that what presidents do? They just start signing a bunch of orders? Yeah, research shows that the the lame duck period of the presidency is somewhat misleading. It's a misnomer because we often think of presidents during this period, you know, they've got no influence, nobody's paying attention to them. Right. It's all about the election. It's the incoming administration. Uh, but, you know, they still have these unilateral powers um, and they can influence, a, you know, and implement a, a great deal of policy in the last minute. So what research finds is when you have a situation like we do now, where the in, the incumbent party, that being the Democrats, when they're about to hand power over to the opposition party, to Trump and the Republicans, and we see a great deal of administrative action at the last minute. If Clinton won, then you probably would not have seen so much unilateral action um, because, you know, you're handing over power to, uh, to the same party. Uh, so, yeah, we're starting to see, uh, you mentioned the ban on uh, Arctic and Atlantic oil drilling. Uh, we're seeing a, a new rule just passed down barring states uh, that deny, uh, excuse me, that bar states from denying federal funding to Planned Parenthood. Mm. And, we, you know, Texas just... Uh, had a, a direct response to that. Uh, President Obama just um, declared a, a national monument in Maine, which is creating a, a little bit of controversy. But, yeah, I, I think we're going to see in uh, just these last weeks here that uh, we're going to we're going to see a very busy uh, White House and mm. trying to implement, you know, these sort of last minute measures. Uh, because you've got uh, Trump and, and the Republicans about to take over. Yeah, chomping at the bit. Um, what I mean, it's the hardest thing in the world. But could you? What do you predict going forward with President Trump? Do you sense? I mean, many worry that he he does want to create, you know, a, a, a new um, role as king. Um, so, mm-hmm. so what, what? How do you see he'll use unilateral power going forward, especially when he's locked and loaded in pretty much all sides of Congress? Right. So.
So I think we will. Uh, I, I think this is where the unilateral powers of the presidency will really be tested. Uh, I, I think this may actually spark a public conversation on what is really the, the proper role of the presidency, um, because it seems like Trump's uh, just his personal disposition is when faced with any sort of opposition um, that really emboldens him and uh, he will likely act alone. So I could see him uh, really using the unilateral powers of the office with uh, a great deal of uh, vigor and enthusiasm. Mm. Um, The one thing to, to be clear about, though, all presidents, are going to face uh, some obstacles, and this is even in their own office. So President Trump, President-elect Trump, has already promised to, you know, overturn every, she calls it, unconstitutional action from President Obama. Uh, It's a lot easier said than done. So we've seen over the last eight years, and this applies to all presidents, that uh, well, yes, you know, it's as simple as with a, a stroke of the pen where they just issue an executive order. While that's true, uh, that involves the bureaucracy. And it, you know, often requires months, if not years, to implement some of these orders and actions. So for President Obama, uh, you know, some of the stuff that has been developing as of late, that has been years in the making. Mm. And I, I think Trump will uh, find a, a great deal of frustration with these powers that he has. Um, and I, I think he will be frustrated at the fact that it's not implemented overnight. It really that, isn't just a signature, is it? Right, exactly. There's a, a long review process. And the bureaucracy can actually, as uh, some research has shown, can actually be the biggest obstacle or the biggest check on presidential power rather than Congress or the courts. It can actually be, you know, career civil service bureaucrats that um, say, Mr. President, as much as we would like to help you out, these laws or these rules and regulations forbid us from implementing this type of action that that you are demanding. Yeah. Well, plus just the, I mean, it it just, it seems like the tentacles of a decision, Obamacare, um, for example, um, just the tentacles that had to go down deep into government in a million different directions, that's not coming out very easily. And Exactly. Right? I mean, it's it's just, like you say, the weight of bureaucracy is just going to slow it down. Right. And and going even beyond unilateral powers, uh, when we create new policies, we also create new politics. So this is why uh, in our political system, it's very easy to build, but it's incredibly difficult to tear down. So in in the case of Obamacare, yeah, Republicans are, are going to be very frustrated with uh, you know, trying to replace um, Obamacare. There, there's a few areas where Trump will probably have an easier time trying to dismantle some of 
uh, the current administration's policies and, and legacy. But in the case of, of you know something like Obamacare, as you said, this runs deep. And once you create this policy, uh, you now create new political coalitions and whatnot. And uh, in some cases, you know, you really don't want to wake that that sleeping bear or, you know, tap the uh, the hornet's nest too many times. Right. Um, as we wrap it up, we've got about a minute. It, I guess one other thing that's important here is sometimes the executive order created some pretty amazing things. Uh, wasn't the Peace Corps created through executive order? Yes, that was through uh, President John F. Kennedy. He campaigned on this idea. Congress really wasn't excited about it. In fact, he was criticized as, you know, why would you want to create some government spring break program for college kids? Mm. And, uh, yeah, when in office, he issued an executive order creating the Peace Corps and through some discretionary funds in the executive branch was able to keep it afloat for a year or two. And by the time Congress uh, revisited this program, it was wildly popular. It was heavily staffed. And, uh, you know, to this day, it's been fully funded. In fact, President Obama, in uh, in one of his more mundane executive actions, uh, issued an executive order changing the logo of the oh, really? Peace Corps. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the president was uh, empowered to to do so. So I, I should uh, just in, in these last few uh, thoughts here, uh, point out that for a lot of these executive actions, a lot of them are incredibly mundane mm-hmm. and, you know, lack any type of, of controversy, whether it's recognizing Thanksgiving or Irish American Heritage Day or World AIDS Day um, or giving people a day off or a half day off or uh, things like that. Um, a lot of that is that encompasses a lot of these unilateral presidential actions. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's if you're a leader, too, you could what a legacy to leave something like um, the Peace Corps, for heaven's sakes. And and then some are mundane, silly little things. But, yeah, powerful stuff. Dr. Mark Major, we appreciate your insight and helping us just walk through the unilateral use of power by a president. It's so many ways that they can do it. Uh, again, go check out Dr. Uh, Mark Major's um, book, The Unilateral Presidency in the News Media, The Politics of Framing Executive Power. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What a great line. Uh, where you sit determines what stands you take. Um, remember, you hear a lot of hype about a president uh, before, during, and after. And yet most presidents are doing whatever they can while they're in the presidency to expand the power and the role of the president. Um, anyway, there, there was an interesting picture that it was on Huffington Post I think uh, that this is the first executive order the president needs to take. There's a picture of President Obama in the in the uh, Oval Office, and in the back in the window, you can see a really scary looking snowman, kind of a like a Chucky scary snowman. 
And uh, that's the first order he needs to do, is to terminate that snowman. Get rid of that thing. Tough job being president. But boy, too, one little signature creates the Peace Corps. Think of how many lives have been changed by students going out to serve. So not all executive orders are bad. We'll take a break. Come back, give you more ideas, more information on how to live a healthier, happier life. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy holidays to you. It's uh, it's the countdown to Christmas. It's Wednesday, folks. Just a few more days. Many of you are off today. You'll be hitting the stores. Chance to spend hours in the parking lot. Throw some elbows. Throw some elbows. Trample some See, people. <laughs> this is the time of year you need to perfect the swim technique. Oh, the swim technique like the... Is that the... That's the lineman... Yeah, the linemen use that De- to swim through the defensive line. Defensive linemen use this to get through the the three hundred fifty pound offensive linemen. You just yeah. you need to be able to push down on a shoulder, go over the top with the other arm, and just kind of power your way through. Just to get this is to get to the candy cane aisle. Yeah, sometimes it's very physical. We were watching a Christmas story last night, and they go to the mall, and I I remember telling my wife there was a time when people couldn't just go online and buy something. They had to go to the store to get it. Do you remember those days? Well, I wasn't alive back in the 30s or 40s or whenever it was. But Oh, it was great. You should be there. Oh, boy. This is why we celebrate Festivus today. Well, we're not. It starts on the 23rd, but we won't be here. So in in a celebration of Festivus, which is really, it's many wonder if it is it an actual holiday. And we say, yeah. But it's it's it was really highlighted on Seinfeld because one of the festival one of the keys to Festivus is the airing of grievances. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. Hmm. That was Frank Costanza, George Costanza's dad. Aren't most family gatherings and airing of grievances at some point? Yeah, but that's see, that's what makes us not want to be with family, right? Because because you don't, you shouldn't be able to just air grievances constantly. There comes a point where we should just. That's why there's one day. Yeah, the twenty third, the twenty fourth. You kind of get back together, kind of mend fences, and the twenty fifth, you celebrate Christmas together. Many people question what, how do you celebrate Festivus? Do you have a tree? No, you have an aluminum pole on a tree stand, not decorated, not decorated, just unadorned. A pole. Yes, and you just and you leave it unadorned. Mm. But I I believe you can hang your coats on them. Okay, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, uh, it's also where you can identify all the Festivus miracles, which are anything that happened to you in the day that may not be a miracle, but you know it happened. I had breakfast this morning. There's a miracle. That was a Festus mir- See, Festivus miracle. Many are saying, but Festivus is then robbing from the real spirit of Christmas. Mm. But Terry says no. Absolutely not. Nay. It's giving meaning to Christmas Eve Eve. Okay. And it's also giving some voice to air your grievances because <laughs> you're sick of all of the fakery of well, Christmas. That's, yeah. 
And then you air that, and by the time you 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 mend fences and you're back together on Christmas, you're a stronger family because of that. Because you don't have these grievances sort of hanging out there and no one addressing them. Wow. See? Yeah. You're, you're, you're managing conflict. It's profound. Yeah. We believe that Festivus Day probably came because of some fallout of Humbug Day, like the Bah Humbug of Scrooge, who was so mad at the stupid holiday. My house is infested with humbugs. I've tried all is sorts that? of sprays. Yeah. I've tried stepping on them. You'll probably have to tent them. your house. Tent it. That, that'll do it? Yeah. The humbug. Okay. Oh, and they just hum like that. And it bugs me. Mm-hmm. By the way, that was the voice of Jeff Simpson. This is, I'm speaking, Matt Townsend, this is my voice, Jeff's See, voice. I, I don't think I need to speak in a woman's voice. I think every time one of us speaks, we just need to say, okay, this is Jeff speaking now. Yeah. Jeff here. <laughs> Matt here. Uh, and, and we're doing this because we got some feedback that some of you out there in listener land are having a hard time figuring out when Matt's speaking and when Jeff is speaking. So, Jeff, let me hear your voice. I don't understand why people are having a hard time with this. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe it's maybe it's because when you're gone, just out of habit, I use some of the same phrases as you. Like, yeah. let's head on over to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. He's hello, saying, gentlemen. He's always saying top of the morning to you. Does he say top? And does he say hello, gentlemen? No, you haven't said that yet. But I have found myself saying good brethren. He does ask. He Nation. does ask for the thing we like to call the one thing. What's the one thing? Does he ask for yeah, that? Yeah, he does that too. Yeah, because you're confusing the audience, Jeff. So we either have to have you speak in like a high-pitched voice. Or you could trademark all of these phrases and then I can't use them. They already are trademarked. Ooh, you're in They're infringement. called trade-matted. Hmm. This would be airing grievances right now. Mm-hmm. Well, Festus. I defy you to go back and listen and be able to discern <laughs> yeah. whether it's you or me speaking. So good luck with that. That is the problem. <laughs> There's a level of dedication that just will not happen there. It's not It's not going away. Let's listen to shows that Matt's not on. That's right. Mm. See, in a way, it's not a bad thing because then I could take more time off. Yep. But I don't want to confuse the audience. I mean, they're already confused. It's okay. And we already confuse them a lot. On it's all Matt Townsend. You're good. <sighs> Great. Okay. Let's go to the headlines. Terry South with the deep, rich voice. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Washington, D.C. workers could be eligible for paid parental and sick leave under a new bill passed in D.C. Uh, by the D.C. Council on Tuesday. The bill passed 9-4 to four, would allow eight weeks of paid paternal uh, paternity leave, six weeks of paid sick leave, and care for the family, two weeks of personal sick leave. The program, which applies to workers and private companies, will be funded by an increase to the city's payroll tax. The bill still requires approval from the D.C. mayor, who has indicated that she would support the legislation. Huh. So we'll see how that works. So they want to provide parental leave through the payroll tax. For up to 16 weeks, it sounds like. Well, you'll get what they said, eight weeks of parental leave, six weeks of paid sick leave, and two weeks of personal sick leave. There you go. Yeah. 16 weeks. See, you you guys like this idea because you are still in the stage of needing paternity leave or whatever. Yeah. Parental leave. Parental leave. Except we don't get paid when we don't work. So. I just I just don't know how this works when you just use the payroll tax. That's used for other things. Yeah. So hmm. we'll see how that goes. Uh, good news. America created 10 million jobs in the last decade. 
Wow. The bad news is that most of them are temporary or contract gigs. Yeah. 94% of the 10 million new jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were either temporary or contract-based, not your conventional 9-to-5 positions, according to a study by Princeton and Harvard economists. In that time period, the proportion of American workers engaged in some type of alternative employment jumped from 10% to 15%. Temporary work. Many say this is why Trump won. Yes. Because we're losing jobs. People in middle America are don't have work. In 2016, 30 people were sentenced to death in the U.S., the lowest number since the early 70s, and a sharp decline from the 49 people handed the death penalty in 2015 and the 315 sentences that are sentenced to death in 1996, the peak year, according to a new report from the Death Penalty Information Center. The 20 executions carried out also marked a 25-year low, 14 people put to death in 1991, and a drop from last year's 28 executions and the 1999 apex of 98 executions. Wow. They said the drop is believed to be a combination of a lack of availability of lethal injection drugs. The company Mm. that made the drugs in Europe found out what they were being used for and then decided to pull back on the product, so they're not available here, and a shift in public support for capital punishment as only 49% of Americans now support the death penalty. That's interesting that that producers of the drug to kill somebody yeah. have actually slowed down executions. Yeah, because they pulled back on the drugs that do well, it. Nobody else makes it because they hold the patents. And I so mean, we've been killing people for years. Yeah. So it, I guess we need to decide as a population, are we not going to do this anymore? Or are we just going to let the companies tell us not to do this anymore? Right. Love to see. They used to use bullets, nooses, and electric chairs. Yes. And they tried to find a more humane way. Yeah. And now we... There so, have, have you, there's been several executions that were botched. Where oh, yeah. People horrible. sat there for like an hour mm. because the drugs didn't yeah, kick in. Yeah, we probably need to have a discussion. Yeah. So, and finally, uh, over the weekend, Ezekiel Elliott, he's a running back for the Cowboys, scored ah. a touchdown, ran into the end zone, and then jumped in a huge Salvation Army bucket they had theirs like promotional oh, in cool. the end zone yeah and he like hid in the bucket and like popped his head out and looked around yeah, yeah. there was thought that the nfl was going to fine him no way that's huge the nfl Promotion. backed off because you know salvation army and all this <laughs> the problem is now the question is did ezekiel elliott know that was a salvation army bucket did he do it for you know promotional charity. for the charity yeah. or was he just showing off because he scored a touchdown who cares so there's this whole, like, Did what's it, his intent? Because it helps. It helps. It helps. But according to the numbers provided by the Salvation Army, the organization has seen $850,000 in donation in roughly two days since the Cowboys star running back cool. jumped into their kettle. Yeah. For added perspective, that's a $250,000 spike in the amount of donations from this time last year, or actually just a week ago. They ought to have right, every so touchdown yeah. from the NFL. Well, they ought to jump in the bucket. Elliot wasn't done there. As he tweeted on Monday night... Uh, given the NFL's decision not to fine him for the celebration, he would be donating $21,000 to the Salvation Army regardless. He also encouraged his fans to add $21 in their own donation to How the cool. organization. Less than 24 hours since that tweet was posted, his uh, his call for donations has raised $17,000 in $21 donations. Man. Right. To say that it's a boost is going a, a long way for, uh, I guess, an understatement. The Salvation Army estimates that $250,000 spike will allow them to serve an additional 91,000 mm. meals to people in need. Elliot's $21,000 donation from himself will provide 8,000 meals. That's awesome. So Honestly, because the NFL... They, they kind of get a bad name here. The no-fun you know? league. Yeah. yeah. No the no-fun league. league. 
And now you've got little kids going to Walmart, walking by those little buckets, and looking inside for Ezekiel Elliott. Right, because he's in there hiding. He's in there hiding. But then the question for the NFL comes, where's the hypocrisy? Because you do anything that looks like a celebration, they find you. But it's not a celebration. It's a donation. He jumped into a huge bucket and played hide and seek. He donated himself. The next thing they're going to have there is a bucket of fried chicken from KFC. And he's going to jump in and eat it, and the sales are going to spike. Oh, yeah. that could be huge, too. You could have a bucket of anything. Yeah. Bucket of love. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the NFL should have thought this through before. Right. And then... Well, no, it's the spontaneity of the, of the that's, situation that's what that made it work. Right. Yeah. Except for the well, fact that... That's killer promotion. Well, even the spike of the just him doing it is what led to the donations. Right. If you turn it into some commercial thing, no, right. people just change the channel. Right. That's cool. So you just well, leave we've already, How many happen. times have you seen a field goal and the Allstate hands oh, are yeah. there and nobody – at first that was cool. That was interesting. Yeah. Now it's like oh, more pro, more propaganda. Well, they donate money, blah, blah, blah. That's just how it works. Yeah, see oh, him. that's cool video. He runs over, dives in there, and he's like <laughs> – he's playing in the, the kettle. That's awesome. And congrats, the, they need the money. Everybody, throw a little, throw a little coinage in there. <laughs> Just throw a little coinage. Hey, um, did you hear about the man that tried to sneak a 58-inch television out of Walmart? That's a big TV to sneak okay. out the door. First of all, that seems like an impossible task. And if you were going to choose any time to sneak a TV out of Walmart, I would probably not choose the day that a bunch of police officers are there shopping with kids. Good tip. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I've been to a Walmart when about 40 cop cars showed up and they went and it was the cops shopping with Santa. The shop with the cops. Shop with the cops. And then the Salvation Army Santa was also an undercover cop. Yeah. And then he got tased because he pulled a taser out of his bucket, Mm. zapped him. That's where they keep it. Uh, A man tried to do this on Christmas, some Christmas shopping at Walmart in Port Port Lucy, Port Lucy, Port Lucy, Florida. What he tried to do, sneak out a 58-inch television on Monday. Unfortunately, he didn't pay for it. Surveillance cameras followed him, uh, the suspect, as he strolled around the store with a huge TV box hanging out of his shopping cart. And then as he tried to make his way out, the asset protection officer tried to stop Walsh. uh, And he turned back and went back into the store and then tried to leave through another exit. But luckily, because there were so many officers in the place doing the shop-a-cop with kids... They were able to arrest him quickly. You know, we just brought up a good point the other day. Have you ever gone into the store and accidentally walked out with something? Maybe it was just yeah. an act. Maybe he forgot he had the, no, the TV in his cart. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, I forgot. Oh, that was stuck in the, yeah, like it was stuck in my shopping yeah. cart. Yeah. You I can miss a, a five-foot-wide television. No yeah. problem. No. <laughs> you can't get away with that with a big 60-incher or a 58-incher. Um, here's the problem. Hmm? Apparently, he had tried to do this the day before. He actually got away with it. He already stole a television the day before. Oh. So they were looking for him. So he not only was being watched because they saw him do it the day before, but they also realized that, you know, you got a car, a a store full of cops. Hmm. You got to quit while you're ahead. (sighs) It's just a bad criminal all all the way around. Again, a bad criminal all the way around. Um, Well, if you got away with it once, don't you just leave and just count yourself lucky? You, you think so, or you just go to another Walmart. Right. You Appar- don't go to the same Apparently Walmart. Apparently they have some laps in security. Yeah. It might be across all stores. You hey, don't know. one more rule. If there's more than five police cars at the Walmart, I wouldn't rob it. Right. Know what I mean? Yeah. Call me lazy. <laughs> but I'm not robbing that. You're one. lazy. 
rude. Well, you told me to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I did say call me lazy. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about parenting, how to communicate, connect, and guide your teen to adulthood. That's ahead. But uh, also, let's have a little promotion from one of our new uh, sponsors of the show, Santa's Hotline. Santa's Hotline, please hold. Whew. Things sure get busy here on the North Pole this time of year. Most of Santa's elves are working around the clock to finish making toys for all of the good boys and girls. But what about the boys and girls that aren't so good? Well, that's where I come in. From now until Christmas Eve, I'll be answering phones around the clock, taking calls from parents who'd like to report bad behavior. Here's a call I got earlier today. She won't eat a dinner. Her room's a disaster. And she started calling me by my first name. So if your kids are acting up this year, call Santa's hotline at 1-888-BAD-KIDS and ask for me, Fred. Here's another call. I better take this. Santa's hotline, Fred speaking. Welcome back, friends. From rule-breaking and risk-taking to defensive communication and disrespect, parenting a teenager can feel like modern warfare, can it? But it doesn't have to be that way. Joining us today is internationally renowned parenting expert, Dr. Thomas Phelan. Uh, Dr. Phelan is um, here to discuss how to communicate with your teens, help them, your children to open up more with you through talking and set some boundaries for your teen. All of this can be found, um, plus a lot more in his new book, 123 Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. Dr. Dr. Thomas Phelan, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, how are you? Good to have you on the show. Uh, I have a lot of teenagers, quite honestly. I am a parent of six kids, can't get enough of them, and yet, uh, really, there's something about the this kind of competition. I don't know what it is. It's kids. I think it's teenagers growing into their own individual self, but it sometimes creates a big collision between parents and teens. It really does. They're a different breed of cat from the preschoolers, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, we find a lot of parents, they they sit down at the dinner table and they say to their 16-year-old son, how was your day? He says, fine. They say, what'd you do? He says, nothing. They say, did you have social studies? He says, yeah. And they say, what'd you do in social studies? He says, we didn't do nothing in social studies. <laughs> and that's the way the conversations go. Yeah. Why is that? What and, and what mistakes are we making as parents as we try to communicate with our teens, get them to open up? Well, one of the, this may sound funny, but one of the mistakes is asking that question in the first place. Uh, we we have a saying in our office, never ask your teen, how was your day? Because you know what a lot of uh, teenagers do is they'll translate the question, and they translate it into something like, did you screw up anything today that I need to know about? Mm. And then they get defensive because they're thinking, I don't, I don't need you for this kind of supervision, and uh, you know, I'm old enough to be on my own, et cetera, et cetera. It's so true because your intent isn't to judge them, but they're, they're thinking you're trying to find something they did wrong. That's right. And, you know, honestly, uh, sometimes the parent's intent is to uh, do kind of a, uh, what I call a mini diagnostic, you know, to find out, is there something I need to be worried about here? Uh, and I better check up on you. And teens find that insulting. In, fi- in fact, they find adolescents insulting. Mm, that's such a great point. I mean, I see that with my kids that it just you can tell really 
what their intent is because their response is so they're they're almost offended and they're and they're all they're so protective so what would we say instead of so how was your day what would we say well you have several alternatives and some of them feel kind of uncomfortable to parents but first of all if you've been saying how was your day and you get that we call that the adolescent snub mm-hmm. then you know at least that's not what you want to say one option is to say nothing just don't talk and see who starts the conversation, see if they talk about something or whatever. One of the things I used to do with my kids was I would talk about myself. Um, I had a son who was pretty pretty grumpy when he was a teenager, and one day coming home from work, I had almost gotten into a fight in a parking lot because some guy thought I'd run just about run him over. So I thought, well, I'll just tell my teen that story. So I said, you won't believe what happened to me today. I almost got in a fight. Well, immediately I had his attention, mm. and I wasn't grilling him about his day, and he was fascinated by the story. So talking about yourself is very helpful, and try and, try and find something interesting and almost uh, newsworthy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's actually um, that's pretty interesting, this idea of let them kind of lead the conversation, because... If they do engage you and want to talk, like my son is so proud because he's on the bowling team. And um, he's so excited because it's he thinks it's funny because it's not the studliest thing in the world, but they have a ton of fun when they do it. And he'll bring that up instantly. But if I ask him, so how did you do on your chemistry test? It creates a fight. Let him go where they want to go, huh? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, If they want to bring up the conversation, yeah, just just wait. Because they'll take offense. You know, hundreds of years ago, I mean, maybe three or four hundred years, there wasn't any adolescence. Kids uh, grew up. There were still kids. They were 14 or 15. They got jobs. They got married. Uh, the reason we have adolescence now is you have a industrialized society that requires huge amounts of increased education. So these kids, you know, from the time they hit puberty, you know, 11, 12, uh, to 22, they're in school, mm. and they're dependent on their elders, and they, they don't like that. That's a, that's not a good thing. So you're absolutely right. Let them, you know, lead the way. I don't think, as a society, I don't think we do a good enough job at all uh, giving our teenagers uh, as much independence as we should. And, and the voice, right? I mean, because we're the authority, we're in the know, they probably hear a lot more negative from us than just supportive listening. They do, and that brings up another thing is, you know, the the kids, uh, you think back to when you were a teenager, how did you feel about sitting down at the dinner table or, mm. and talking with your parents and that kind of thing? <clears throat> and you probably weren't that thrilled thrilled about it, but I think you're right. You know, parents' voice, uh, we have what we call the four cardinal sins and things not to do, and one is uh, nagging, another one's lecturing uh, the kids, and you can imagine, just as you said, what kind of tone of voice goes along with that? Well, it's a it's a condescending, even demeaning tone of voice, and they really don't like that. Is it? Um, is there something? I mean, I always assume too. He's underslept. His hormones are raging as his body's changing. He's 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 kind of probably going through this process of figuring out who he is and how he fits into this great big world. And then he's got a parent that seems to constantly be critiquing. Yeah. And you have one of the worst things you can do is what we call over-parenting, which is getting anxious about your kid 
and then you, uh, you know, verbalize or voice your anxieties to them, often with anxious questions like we were talking about before. And you're right, he's trying to figure this whole thing, you know, do I, do I have a girlfriend or not? Am I going to have a girlfriend? Uh, do I have friends? Uh, what kind of career and job am I going to have? I mean, they, they have this whole thing they got to figure out in creating their identity in their life. And then you're coming in, and you're, instead of being supportive, you're just adding to the stress, which is not what you want to do. And, and, and interesting, I guess, the mere fact you're using questions puts you in a different space in the hierarchy, right? I mean, you, it's, it's almost questioning versus um, making an observation. I, I, I don't think – when friends talk to friends, it doesn't seem like they just ask a lot of questions. But when parents talk to teens – we probably come at it with a lot of questions. We think the question is the best way to get them talking. But yeah. what are some other ways I could get them talking that, that aren't questions? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The question, first of all, the person in any conversation, the person who's asking the questions is in control. Mm. So just like you said, when you start asking questions, you're putting yourself on a higher level. What you're almost saying is, I'm okay, the parent, but you're maybe not okay. We're not so sure, so let's yeah. find out. So I'm going to ask you some questions to try and uh, find out that kind of stuff. And that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is support what they are doing. One of the best things you can do, going back to talking about yourself, talk about uh, what you screwed up when you were a teenager. Talk about what you were afraid of when you were a teenager. Talk about your experience with the opposite sex when you were a teenager and put yourself on the same plane. You don't have to be buddies with them all the time. Hmm. Um, but that's that's a much more supportive thing, and they will. That's how they learn. I mean, uh, about relationships, you don't read a book to them about relationships and expect them to assimilate right. a lot of that. But if you talk to them about what happened to you, they'll be listening. Yeah, I mean, no, and in fact, a lot of times it almost seems like when they're a little younger, almost maybe preteen, they're more willing to ask you that. They're more willing to ask you about your childhood. Um, when you get a little older, I don't know, it almost is like they don't want to start that. But if you can start it and say, holy cow, I had the same thing happen when I was a kid, and you talk about it, they do relax quite a bit. Yeah, they they do. And you get into things like, you know, sex in particular. I mean, they, they want to hear about your sex life about as much as they want to walk barefoot on a hotbed <laughs> of coals. And that's not, uh, you know, a favorite uh, conversation for them. But if you get into some things and start volunteering, and you're comfortable with doing it, which, yeah. of course, a lot of us are not, um, that puts the conversation on a whole different plane. What about boundaries? Um, it seems like a lot of us as parents, we we have this anxiety that we're going to ruin the child, the anxiety that they're going to turn into something that we'll have to deal with. Um, so we either overset boundaries or we underset boundaries. What are the what are the real needs of kids, teenagers when it comes to boundaries? What do they really want from us and what do we need to make sure we deliver? Yeah. I think you know there's a saying kids uh really want limits and um uh, and so on and I don't quite agree with that. I don't think kids like limits, but they do much better when limits are when limits exist and when they're enforced fairly. Hmm. And so I think when your kids get to be teens, it's a good idea to periodically have conversations with them about what the boundaries are going to be. What the, you, you, I call it house rules in the, in the book, but you have house rules for things like dating. When can you date one-on-one? 
uh, when can you use the car, when can you get your driver's license, uh, what about hours, what about drug use, alcohol use, and all that kind of stuff, alcohol use, driving, that stuff should be, and even in a lot of families, what they'll do is write it down, and they'll yeah. make an agreement, uh, and I think that's a good thing to do, so then they know what the rules are, and your your rule about the rules is you want rules to be fair, uh, but minimal, um, so you don't want to do your over-anxious parent thing, you know, have a little bitty uh, rule for this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I think that's much more reasonable. And then when something bad happens, you've got a, a schema that you can fit it into. And you're saying to do this proactively, not just reactively to the fact that they're late. Now we're going to hammer a rule. You're saying do it <laughs> all right. proactively. That's the best way to do it. I mean, that's hard to do, too. I mean, how many of us actually do that? But that would really be good because the worst thing you want is they, they say they're, uh, you know, the town curfew is midnight and they come in at one thirty. Uh, the worst thing you can do is meet them down at the door and say, now, where were you and this, that, and the other thing. And then they start lying or covering up and you have a big argument at one thirty in the morning. That's stupid. Uh, what you do is you say, well, you came in at one thirty. That's an hour and a half past. Uh, tomorrow when we're all refreshed, we'll sit down and talk about what we need to do about that. And I guess uh, it's really interesting. Um, anxious parents, it seems like, create anxious kids because um, they're they're so anticipating every possible issue. I've seen parents that are so fearful that they actually put ideas in kids' heads, <laughs> right? The kid had never even ever thought of doing such a thing, but because the, the parents are so preemptive of those these certain acts that those kids they actually put the idea in the kid's head well it, it can happen you know there's a couple other aspects to it of it too and one is anxious parents pass on genes for anxiety to mm-hmm. the kids, which can make and a lot of there's a lot of uh, emphasis these days on genetics not that parenting is 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 not important it is but the genes are important too right. the other thing uh, about what you were saying is anxious parents produce angry kids and what that means is if you're my child and i verbalize my anxieties to you on a regular basis i'm going to make you mad because that that is uh, it's an insult to you it's the opposite of a vote of confidence so every time you go out and i say now be sure to use this be sure you don't do that be sure you do this be sure you don't and all that i'm i'm aggravating you yeah, and you'll find that research shows that you you send the kids out in that frame of mind when they're mad, they are more likely to screw up and to do something that uh, gets them in trouble or that where they where they get hurt. Yeah. Uh, so all this caution, caution, caution stuff backfires for exactly that reason. Is it? Um, there's something that I noticed with uh, one of my clients the other day. They frame their their child's behavior as lying as deviant, as kind of, as disobedient. And what I heard from the child was an inability to be honest with their parents because they, their parents can't take it. They won't hear it. So, so it, then I see this frustration come out in the child because the child can't share the truth about what they feel because every time they do, the parents go off on a tangent. Um, yeah. But then every time the parents call the child a liar – their self-esteem of this child, they, they're being branded by their own parent as just a deviant. Yeah, and they, they need another uh, system for dealing with that kind of stuff because I think you're making a good point. If they are, are, are so uh, uptight that the child knows that they're going to have a fit uh, whenever he tells the truth. And, you know, the statistics are something like, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, like 60 to 70% of 16-year-olds lie. I mean, yeah. that's not a 
It's not an unusual thing. Right. It's not like it's pathological. It's a developmental stage, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, so, but if they go through it and you're doing it out of fear uh, that you're going to upset your parents, then that that whole communication process needs to be reworked from the bottom up because that's that's bad news. Yeah. And a label, I mean, the label of liar, that's a pretty heavy thing to be branded permanently by your parents. I think it is. And I think to many kids, liar means uh, uh, subhuman of some kind. Mm. And, you know, what they're saying is that you you don't deserve to live in the house, you don't deserve for us to love you, and uh, you're hardly a member of the uh, human race. So true. Again, we are speaking today with Dr. Thomas Phelan, and he is the author of the book, One, Two, Three, Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. We will take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Basically, Parenting 101, some of the basic things we need to make sure we're getting done and not getting done with our kids. Let's not over-parent, but let's make sure we parent. There's the paradox for you. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here talking on the line with Dr. Thomas Phelan. He is the author of the book, One, Two, Three, Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. If you go to 123magic.com, you can get all the information, resources, just wonderful resources there uh, as a parent as well to to get through these sometimes difficult times. Also, uh, a time I love. For me, it's a little easier to parent a teen than it is sometimes a toddler. Toddlers, I don't seem to have the patience for. Um, uh, Dr. Phelan, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Do, you. do you notice, I mean, is it is it true that, you know, some parents just do teens better than they do toddlers? You know, I think it's probably true, and I think I'm probably the opposite. Uh, so I think all of us are, are different. Are different. I, I find with the toddlers, uh, one of the really nice things, it's so nice when you don't have to put their snowsuit on. Right. They can do that themselves. And when they don't do diapers anymore and they can climb into the car by themselves, they yeah. can get dressed and all that. Although from a playful point of view, I always related better, I think, to the toddlers than to the hmm. teens. Yeah. Uh, but you might be the opposite of that. And that, I guess that's the strength of, of having parents. And, um, you know, if you have two of them, if you're fortunate enough to have both in the home, you might have a shot that one of them can handle a teen. That's right. Or one of you can do the toddlers better than the other one pick up when they get to be teens. I think for, for a lot of parents, so the hardest part is getting around that teenage snub. Yeah. When they start indicating that they don't need you mm-hmm. as much. And not to, the part of the big thing is don't take that personally. Yeah, don't be offended. You. Because yeah. you could see a parent being offended and then they turn off. They, they start pulling away, which is of all the times to not pull away from your teen, it's right then. That's right. That's that's what we call the re-snub. So they snub, and then you re-snub, mm. and now you've got. And you know, like I said before, the, what the research seems to show is that when you get, if you don't have an open and friendly relationship between the parent and the teen, they're more likely. The teens are more likely to get hurt with drugs, sex, alcohol, drinking and driving, uh, internet stuff, and all that. So uh, it, it, it's really important to maintain that bond as best you can. You know, it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. 
you you even bring up you you were in an article you wrote an article or were were did a little Q and A in LifeZet dot com, and the title was "Parent Your Teenager Well, Then Get Out of the Way." Yeah. Uh, do, do, do you think we we're overdoing it still? We we're are we still helicopter parenting? Well, I think a lot of people are. I, I, you know, I think there are certainly some parents. They throw up their hands. I don't know what to do with this kid, and they just kind of pull out. And they're not the helicopters. They don't ever get off the ground. But I think there are a lot of people that are doing the overparenting, the anxious parenting, and all that. And that's not good either. I mean, one of the best things you can do with a teen is uh, get together with them on a regular basis to do nothing other than just have fun, uh, like go to a movie or go bowling or go something. But not where you're asking them all kind of questions about. What do they think about life and, you know, uh, these things where they can think that you're diagnosing them. But just where you, what you're saying to them is, I like you, I value time with you, and let's go have a good time. And that mm. that, that kind of bonding is really important. What do you um, – how do you not let life get involved? I mean, I have I have kids that their primary goal in life seems to be to just have fun. And I, I feel like a lot of times I'm throwing a wet blanket on them where it's like, no, you know what? It's a school night and we've got to do homework. And then all of a sudden they get mad and they think I'm not wanting to have fun. How do I, how do I kind of gently, I guess, create the limit for them? Um, I, maybe that goes away if I, did, if I do spend time regularly with them actually having fun. Well, it it might not automatically. Just if you have fun, uh, the the homework problem won't necessarily go away. But what will happen is if you do have the fun, you have more leverage when it comes to sit down and talk about homework. <clears throat> and I would, you know, do the fun stuff and and all that, try and have a good relationship. But then you you what we say with the teens. Uh, you, you want to make an appointment with them. When you have a problem, you make an appointment to talk to them about, say, homework. Mm. Uh, and then you say, look, here's, here's the issue I got with the homework. And I think in, in that, it's a, sort of a mini family meeting, maybe just the two of you. But you would uh, say to them that, that your point of view is when dealing with homework, the goal is to get rid of you. You know, If you have a teenager and they're 16 years old, you shouldn't be involved in their homework. Right. They should be doing that kind of stuff. So you you sit down with them and you say, let's talk about homework, and our goal is how are we going to get me out of the picture? Yeah, which which is enticing for them, right? They want yeah. you out of the picture, <laughs> but but they may not know how to do it. Yeah, they might. And, you know, usually for, I mean, what we do for the younger kids and sometimes for the teens is <clears throat> we'll set up a routine uh, uh, for homework every night and try and agree, agree on it. So, uh, you know, I mean, one of the best routines is you come home from school, you goof off for a little bit, have something to eat, then sit down at 4 o'clock, try to get your homework done before dinner. After dinner, everybody can goof off. Uh, but, but, but 4 o'clock is homework time. And if you want to watch a TV show, you tape it, and you don't do this other stuff, you know. And it's complicated with extracurricular activities and things like that. But routines are very helpful. The worst thing you want is uh, is for you have a system which is kind of a sloppy one where the parent says, do you have any homework tonight? That's a horrible, horrible, horrible start. Oh. It means it's the parent's responsibility, not theirs. No, it's so true. And I, my wife says that every night to each kid, and I'm like, oh, I can already sense that we're if we're not worried about it, they're not worried about it. If we don't remind them, they don't remember. But that's where we're setting them up to fail, huh? 
Yeah, I think so. And when you said just a minute ago that, oh, you know, that's exactly what they feel inside when you say, do you have any homework? Uh, so you want, and, you know, <clears throat> that goes for so many other things. I mean, you still have house rules, but stuff like, you know, going to bed and homework and <clears throat> management of friends, you want to be out of that stuff as much as possible mm. and only intervene if there's a big problem. But, uh, yeah, it's time to have a little powwow and uh, come up with a better system that puts the initiative where you reward initiative on their part. Yeah. And it, and it also seems like it, you're, they're turning into this age where it's actually doable. I mean, we have major leverage over our child with a phone, our teenager, because yeah. his phone is, is his lifeline. But he also – he got a taste this last summer of making money and putting money away. And it was yeah. pretty – I mean, now he's got the taste of it and – he wanted to quit, and we're like, he kept asking us if we could quit, and we're like, well, sure, but if you quit, you're it's just to give you some data, you're gonna run out of money, and uh-huh. it. What's funny is when we when we just let the consequences of life that be his that he had to pay, and he had to pay for his dances and he had to pay for his stuff. Boy, he got another job very quickly. It's powerful when you let kind of the more natural consequences play out. Yeah. No, that's wonderful because that that's that is natural consequences, and <clears throat> it's him taking responsibility. And that's why, like I was saying before, I don't think we uh, allow or whatever our teenagers to do enough of that. I'm a big fan of teenagers having jobs where they yeah. they make their money, they manage it. You don't tell them how to manage it. Don't even manage. put it in the bank. I mean, my wife was still putting it in the bank for him, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Let him go figure yeah. out. Go let him negotiate with the teller. Yep, that's right. And then, and that's part of that thing about uh, you sit down with them and you work out a system where they get rid of you. Yeah. Oh, that's freeing. That's pretty powerful. We've got about two minutes left, Doc. Talk to us. Um, if, if you're uh, – just as a, as a parent, as an expert on this, what would you say is really the one thing? I always ask for the one thing that we as parents, if we could just do this consistently, it would create a huge impact in our relationship with our child. Well, my my favorite thing, I think, is probably the uh, one-on-one shared fun. Um, <clears throat> I was saying yesterday to somebody, you know, if if you uh, wanted to pick just one thing, uh, and, you know, and this sounds sacrilegious, but people in our society overrate family fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got a teenager. A teenager doesn't want to go out with their brothers and sisters all the time to the movie, they, they, but they do like going out with one parent or the other parent some of the time. So I think that one-on-one fun and that bonding and that staying in touch, and you don't have to be talking about, you know, deep philosophical issues all the time, but I think that's very important. And let them talk. If they want to talk, that's fine. If they don't want to talk, you just sit there and watch the movie or eat your cheesecake and, you know, but you were together. And yeah. I think that's the big biggest thing that, uh, and one of the things that we don't do. And, and then it, it, in the fun, connect at a deep level. If you can. Yeah. That's where you have to be careful about asking those questions. Right. Because you say, I want to go deep, and that means i got to start asking questions. You're not going deep. Right, <laughs> You're yeah. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, and maybe maybe not making it the goal, making it just the inevitable. You spend enough time with somebody and you're listening, yeah. there, there's going to be a major chance, I think, to to connect. Exactly. They see you as a good listener and you're there. That's what can happen. That's right. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Thomas Philan uh, is his name. If you go check out his website, 123magic.com, and his book, 123Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. Lots to learn, isn't there, as a parent? Don't just think because you've had kids, you know what to do with them. we got to learn. Stay on the learning curve, right? This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Well, with only four days left until Christmas, no doubt you're busy buying and wrapping presents, delivering tasty treats to your neighbors, and going out on family outings to see all the Christmas lights. So how do you find time to squeeze in all of your favorite holiday films before Sunday? Well, Jeff Simpson is here to help solve the problem by providing you with a list of movies you can easily eliminate from your holiday queue. Well, there are only four days left till Christmas, which isn't a lot of time to squeeze in all your favorite holiday films. This is Jeff Simpson, and in an effort to help you save time, here are five movies you can safely save until next year. Or just skip completely. Number one. Now, I'm probably going to get into trouble with my wife for this one, and it isn't a particularly bad film, but for me, Irving Berlin's White Christmas just doesn't lend itself to repeat viewing. It's cheesy, it seems longer than it is, and is anyone else bothered by the fact that Bing Crosby's love interest in the film, Rosemary Clooney, was 25 years younger than Bing? I guess I've always been kind of a silly schoolgirl, you know the bit, the... Lady Fair and the Night on the White Horse. Let me tell you something. It's kind of dangerous putting those knights up on white horses. Likely to slip off, you know. Ugh, creepy. Number two, Scrooged. This dark take on Dickens' A Christmas Carol is just a downer. As much as I love Bill Murray, his laid-back demeanor is best when he's playing an innocent. Like in What About Bob? I've never been on a boat and... I don't think I can handle it. And his sarcasm is best when his character has an arc, like in Groundhog Day. Do you ever have deja vu? Didn't you just ask me that? But Murray's arc here is minimal, if not non-existent. The film is crude, mean-spirited, and unnecessary. We have spent $40 million on a live TV show. You guys have got an ad reading a book in front of a fireplace. I have to kill all of you. Brownie points, however, to Danny Elfman's exceptional score. Number three, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to murder that kid. This film is more of a remake than a sequel. When Home Alone Part 1 became the highest-grossing holiday film of all time, the filmmakers definitely took the if-it-ain't-broke approach when making Part 2. Instead of Chicago, mischievous Kevin is alone in New York. What kind of idiots do you have working here? The finest in New York. Instead of overcoming his fear of a creepy snow salt shoveler, he overcomes his fear of a creepy bird lady. What's this? It's a turtle dove. I have one, you have one. As long as we each have a turtle dove, we'll be friends forever. And instead of crooks Harry and Marv getting maimed by paint cans, Harry and Marv get maimed by paint cans. Now, this doesn't mean as a kid I didn't love the maiming parts. In fact, I would usually fast forward to those paint cans. Come on, let's get them. Oops. (sighs) Good times. Number four. Like many of you, I'm always on the lookout for new holiday classics. Well, Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas, continues Disney's classic tradition of cashing in on former hits at any cost. 
Uh, the good news, the entire main cast is back for this straight-to-video sequel-slash-prequel with a few welcome additions like Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry. The bad news, the 70-minute film focuses on Belle's efforts to secure a Christmas tree. Oh, sorry. The music is simply unbearable. If you must love someone, may I suggest you love yourself, just think it through. You'll never leave and you'll find you'll get more rest. You'll always feel as good as new. The animation is noticeably inferior to the original. Just as an example, when Belle first appears on screen, my daughter said out loud, That's not Belle. And number five, the Star Wars Holiday Special. Now, in all honesty, I've never actually seen this film, other than maybe the first five minutes. But I have heard many of the stories surrounding this 1978 made-for-TV movie that suggest the experience was anything but jolly for those involved. It's Chewie, but where's Han? That's him hanging upside down. A quote from George Lucas sums it up perfectly. If I had the time and a sledgehammer... I would track down every copy of that show and smash it. I can't understand what Chewbacca's doing. So there you have it. My five picks for Christmas movies you should probably avoid. This is Jeff Simpson returning tomorrow with my five picks for the five slightly obscure Christmas movies you don't want to miss. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy 21st of December. This is the day, by the way, that we're celebrating Festivus. Even though Festivus is... Uh, a holiday that is celebrated on the 23rd. We won't be here on the 23rd, and so we wanted to make sure you know what Festivus is. It's 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 a big holiday for a f- very few people. So last hour we talked about one of the things that you do on Festivus is the airing of grievances. Uh-huh. And here's number two. And now as Festivus rolls on, we come to the feats of strength. Not the feats of strength. The feats of strength. You get in a fight. This with is, your loved ones. This is where you are. See, because a lot of people get filled down when they get in a fight. They're negative. They're angry. They're upset. But if on um, Festivus, you're allowed to fight and argue with your family members. It's part of the feats of strength. By the way, Festivus, you don't have to decorate a tree. No. You just pull. You, there's an aluminum pole that you put up and you don't decorate it. You could use it as a coat rack, but you don't have to. Would that be considered decoration, though? No, it'd just be considered, it'd be functional, utilitarian. If you stick it outside, though, make sure you don't put your tongue on it. Great, great point for those that are celebrating Festivus in really cold areas. In towns in Indiana in the 40s or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is that where you're from, by the way? Indiana? Towns in Indiana? No. 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 Just from here. Just from Utah. Nice. Um... Festivus miracles, also an important part of Festivus, where you identify any common day thing, you know, and you just say that was a miracle. Terry, have you had a Festivus miracle yet today? Um, yeah, a couple. I drove to work. That was huge. Yeah. 
That's but, a great. But there, there was probably snow on the road. It, it was snowing when it, I was driving. It was trying to. It didn't actually. Oh, yeah. That's, that's still a miracle. Yeah, I made it. Snow or no snow, and I think the snow itself was mir- a miracle. Right. And I, I got here very quickly. I'm trying to sleep as long as I can to get to improve my health. I didn't run into furniture in the dark in my house this morning. That's a miracle. Mm. That happens from time to time. It's a total miracle. People start moving things around. Man. I got my wife was up. She was awake when I left, which never happens. Hmm. That was a miracle. She probably wouldn't consider that a miracle, though. Yeah. She, she said it was because the lights were on. That was your fault. Yeah. Knock it off, Matt. Well, don't put Christmas trees in your – or don't put Christmas lights in your bedroom. You should get one of those one of those headlamps. Oh, that's a great idea. And then you just turn that on. Because and I use my phone and I'm carrying yeah. my phone around. If you use a headlamp, one, it looks suspicious to all the neighbors. Yeah. And and two, it's not like a whole room is intensely bright. It's just that one right. beam on your family's face when you well, look and, over to see what happens. And see, you look like you're cool. No. You look like a miner. But that's fine. Totally my, my father pulled one of those out the other day. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, when you're working on the car. Hey, here's a little trick. You have to trick. hold the flashlight. <laughs> I used to have a great headlamp, and then I lent, I, which I had had for years, and I lent it to my son to take on a scout trip. Broken. Mm. Yeah, well. Gone. So uh, from uh, a parental point of view, yeah. how do you have that conversation? About the headlamp? Yeah. Well, we just took him out to the shed. <laughs> well, you handled it. But I had my headlamp on. Okay. My broken headlamp. We did it at night. Sounds like that you took your son out to the shed. Like that was that's where the punishment takes place. That's exactly what, where it takes place. Mm. Nice. And I we just sat there. Well, and, at least you have a plan. But I didn't touch him. I just make him sit there, and then I I make him read my book. Ooh. Yeah. So because I don't want to just punish him in vain, I want him to learn how to have a better relationship. So he reads my book. So you stuff. throw the book at him. Yeah. Literally. Nice. Nice. Do you starve him? No. Oh, you don't. No. But okay. I make him eat. I make him drink eggnog because right now I'm the only one in the house that will drink the eggnog. Really? Yeah. I'm actually. I'm the only one that bought it. Try eggnog with some chocolate milk <sighs> and, and lighter then, fluid. And then if you toss in a little bit more, just regular milk. Yeah. To kind of make it. Man, it's hey, good. Here's a little problem, and you tell me if this if I'm going too far. Um, I'm lactose intolerant. Probably don't want to do what I just told you. I know, but I can't (laughs) stop drinking my eggnog. Well, maybe if you didn't let the eggnog go like two weeks past its date, Mm. other people would drink it too. Mm. No, it's, it's not. It's good. Oh, okay. But I'm not egg intolerant. I'm just lactose intolerant. I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure there's no lactose in eggnog. You should be good with the nog. By the way, what is nog? I'm nog intolerant. I'm not sure. I don't know if if you want to look it up. I'm going to look it up. But oh, you may not want to do this. Really? Because yeah. I'm pretty sure ever since I've had this che- this chest cold, I'm, I thought I was full of nog. Hmm. It's a small block or a peg of wood. Yeah. So again, it doesn't so really egg, make sense. So eggs, we all know what an egg is. Yes. Nog, hmm. small block, or peg of wood. Hmm. Drink enough of it and it's going to cause a blockage yeah. right so it's, around here. It's an eggy peg. And it's high in fiber. It's all good. It's a nice oak. It's all good. Hey, in a moment, we'll be talking about uh, building great relationships with yourself. What? I know. Sometimes we don't. We lose ourselves. We lose our, our, our own identity as we go through life. Hmm. We'll get into that fun. Plus, um, It's called marriage, isn't it? No. Oh. 
Oh, sorry. Go on, go in on. marriage, sorry. that's where you find yourself. That's a whole other problem. Oh, we'll deal brother. with that another day. No, marriage is a <laughs> gift. Uh, we'll get to that. Plus, we'll visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation down in San Diego. They are getting ready for the big bowl game tonight. I believe they're at the stadium today. They always, they've got a good life. The last couple of days, live from a... Uh, Hotel. Well, no, they're at a yes, a yacht a club. Yacht, yeah, a yacht club. Like seriously, this is work for you guys. Aren't you glad that I told you it was tonight? You yeah. wouldn't have known. I kept thinking it was Thursday night, but it's tonight, which is great because my wife will she'll for sure allow me to watch a bowl game. That and I'm wearing my Brigham Young shirt today. Right. So you're a huge fan. Huge fan. So we'll visit them, and then we'll give you the hero story plus. We've got just a lot of important news, some of which you might want to have, and some of which is just empty news, Matt Townsend Show news. Mm. Uh, But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Donald Trump took a break from his presidential transition process on Tuesday morning to inform the world that it was Bill Clinton who called him and not the other way around following the election. Clinton said earlier this month that the president-elect called him following the election and was cordial. Like it was 15 years ago when the powerful men were publicly friendly. Bill Clinton stated that I called him after the election, Trump tweeted on Tuesday morning. Wrong. He called me. In parentheses, it says, with a very nice congratulations. He doesn't know much. The latter sentence was a jab at Clinton's remarks to a local newspaper that Trump doesn't know much, but that he does know how to get angry white men to vote for him. Uh, Former President Clinton fired back at the president-elect several hours later, saying, here's one thing that Trump and I can agree on. I called him after the election, suggesting the pair spoke on multiple occasions, with each calling the other at least once. Can I just say something? Go ahead. Who cares? (laughs) I know. Who cares? These are grown men, world leaders. And what are we fighting about? Please. On Twitter. Since being elected, Donald Trump has been under pressure from his critics who have demanded he divest assets of his company completely. And soon, the Trump family has repeatedly insisted on setting up a blind trust to deal with the ethical quandary. Although, exactly how blind such a trust, run by Trump's sons Donald and Eric, would be, many critics are doubtful. Politico now writes that the transition team is exploring options that might not be blind at all. Trump might hmm. just keep one eye shut. Wow. The plan would effectively be a, quote, half-blind trust that would allow Trump to peek on his businesses. Uh, Walter Schaub, the chief of the Office of Government, Government Ethics, who was appointed by Barack Obama and will be in office until January 2018, could continue to demand a more satisfying solution. So it's a half-blind trust. Yeah, okay. With peeking, like, you know. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Seems kind of odd. Uh, Google, they make a lot of money. Yeah. Their their parent companies, they, they redid the structure. It's called Alphabet. Google is one of the companies under the Alphabet umbrella. Right. Just to give you some right. structure here. Uh, in the most recent fiscal year, Alphabet lost $3.6 billion on its, quote, other bets. Wow. The demeaning term, it refers to its non-Google business divisions, like they have one called X, which develops balloon-powered internet access and drone delivery. That's double what the bets lost the year before. Bloomberg reports Google's ad business, meanwhile, brought in $76 billion, some 89% of Alphabet's total revenue. No one wants to face the reality that this is an advertising company with a bunch of hobbies, one ex-Google exec says. But it's actually pretty smart to, I mean, you only need three or four of the Alphabet businesses to succeed and then you're a multi-trillion dollar company. And it finances all the other ones where you're trying to, you know, self-driving cars and all that. Finally, uh, do you play Monopoly, Matt, with your family? Uh, No. 
Have you in the past? I have, yeah. What, did, was it a pleasant tedious. experience? It was tedious. It was tedious. Long. It's a game that never ends. In the UK, it's like a Barney song. In the UK, the makers of the game have set up a helpline that will be open from December 24th through the 26th to ensure that the game doesn't ruin your holidays. Wow. Research shows that 51% of Monopoly games end in a fight. The cause of these fights most often are due to people making up rules. Other causes for arguments include stealing from the bank, the rules of free parking, and uh, like being too uh, self-assured that you're in the lead, and so you start gloating to the rest of the players. And yeah, so what would they fight. do if you had a gloating player? I'm not sure. It says uh, the head of Hasbro in the UK and Ireland says, we'll have experts on hand with the official rule books to instantly settle any disputes and advice on how to resolve common complaints, with each person also having the opportunity to make a donation to uh, a local ch- a children's charity. There oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I think regardless of what the rules say, it's pretty common knowledge that if you land on free parking, you get all that cash in the middle of the board. Okay. Mm. It's, it's common knowledge? Yes. Would, yes. Do I need to call a number to know the rules? Because aren't the rules in the – isn't there like a rule book? There's rules included, but they don't address everything. Right. They're more of guide. They're guidelines, really. So I believe there's been some additions made by the company to kind of address some things they didn't uh, think okay. of originally. So yeah. I think the rule book's rather hefty. Okay. Yeah. And so having an expert that is able to search and find these things for you. It seems like all you really need is an app. If you just had a really good app, you could just all then you just look at your app and you don't need to. Right. Talk to a human. You would think. But, you know, they set it up and they're trying to raise some money for a good cause, too. So <gasps> avoid fighting with your family. Well, if you're in the UK, I don't know if they have one for the United Apparently States. Apparently not. They may have an app. I don't know. Maybe we don't fight over here. Maybe if you go to Monopoly.com, they have the rules and you just check it out yourself. Oh, I'm sure they do. Yeah. You have to admit, doesn't your heart sink when somebody else lands on Boardwalk or Park Place? It's just like somebody punched you in the stomach. Yep. Yeah, unless you own those places. Right. And have hotels on them. Then it's like bring but if it they're in. open then for I feel business, like Donald Trump. And somebody lands on one. It's just like, well, there's the game. Yeah, <laughs> that's where I real. That's where if you want to be like a Trump, go just tie down that side of the board. Yeah, and you are just living start large. Start lining up hotels, yeah. and it's over. And then just just dare like, somebody to land. You can on have it. the water company and the electric. All that is fine. Railroads. Yeah. Who cares? If you have those, you're set. High rent. Mm-mm. High rent. <laughs> then you have all the power. Sad, but totally true. Hey, you have some um, rules for us. You've been teaching us throughout the day the, what we do if we get if we if we receive gifts we don't necessarily want. It's difficult because you got family members they yeah. give you something and you're like ah, you don't want it but you got to be and nice. And there's etiquette. Yeah, you got to be so careful. So first off is always be grateful. Second is uh, try to see if there's a convenient way to ask for a receipt. Just in case. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I don't know, know if this will fit. It's now, not my color. Going off on that, they said, say it's your aunt. And Aunt Julia gives you a juicer. You, you need to say, that's a wonderful juicer mm, you got me. It's, it's a good just a juicer. Great thing. I didn't know if you knew this. I already have the exact same model. Ugh, I'm allergic to juice. Could I get the receipt and maybe try to exchange that? That's for good. Some, and then that way it's That's plausible. Good. It's yeah. still a thoughtful, thankful gift, but you have one, so it's a common mistake. Yeah, right. And she didn't you know, know. No problem. No problem. I'm yeah. selling a juicer, by the way, if anybody needs one. Well, my Aunt Julia gave me one. Also, the ethics expert says, if you know your mother-in-law is extremely sensitive and would be very offended, I would think it would not be uh, worth the hurt or tension that you may cause to ask for the receipt. So 
choose wisely. Yeah, be careful. You know the temperament of the people you're dealing. Be careful. With. I'd find out if they're a, if they carry a gun. It says if the person who gave you the gift is watching you open it, be sure not to use negative facial expressions or words. Mm. That is a sure way to hurt someone's feelings and spoil the festive spirit. Great. Yeah. So you're on display. They're yeah. watching. Huh. You got you to be... open up your eyes really bright. So Ooh, here's the here's juicer. the top top tips. One, always show gratefulness no matter what you think of the gift. Yeah. In fact, Someone got you something shows kindness, which should always be appreciated. An Afghan. Two, always write a thank you letter, no matter how you feel about the gift. Thank you letters that we're not getting as many of them as we used to. I would say thank you emails. Yeah, I know you would, but that's not the same. I know, but that's what I would do. Three, choose wording carefully and think before you speak. While you don't want to lie and say that you love something when you don't, you can use other descriptives such as this is such a creative gift or how thoughtful a gift. Wow, that juicer is chrome. I don't hate this. That's there you good. Go. That's really good. Yeah, it's got a blade. It's really good. So just that's think, great advice. Think before you speak. You can put vegetables in it. <laughs> just start stating facts. <laughs> this is a juicer. <clears throat> it spins. It's a black and decker. See, just facts. That's the way to do it. Aunt Julie gave it to me. This is good stuff. Juicing makes you healthy and strong. <laughs> Nine out of ten doctors approve. That's great. <sighs> okay. Now you know how to handle it. Don't freak out. Don't do the frowny face. Don't pout. Just state the facts. Santa brought it. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to build a great relationship with yourself. So you don't have to have all that hate talk. You don't have to be disgusted by who you are, what you're becoming or not becoming. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the good in the world. You know, it's so easy when bad things happen in life to blame your circumstances. Maybe you grew up in a broken home or, a, or lost a job or, you know, you know, the times are tough. There's always excuses for why things happen. And uh, maybe life isn't about all of our external circumstances that we want to blame. Van Moody today joins us. He's author of the new book, The I Factor. He says the key to life you want is actually inside you. He's going to teach us today how to understand our identity, significance, and perspective, and do it in a way that we can manage ourselves a little better and create a more whole life as well. We're honored to have Van Moody on. Van, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Matt. It's a joy to be with you on today. I love your mission and your purpose, um, what you're doing. Talk to us about building a relationship with ourselves. It seems like a lot of people don't they don't like who they are. They don't like what they don't have. They don't, they're just not happy with themselves. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so excited about the I factor. And uh, I know that beyond a doubt, this is a message in a book for the world because you're right. Um, often the biggest challenge for individuals um, is not external, but it's internal. And that's what the I factor is about. And I realized uh, through all of the years of me working with people and working with leaders and even working with businesses that often it is not the external that is the biggest challenge. We've seen the history, uh, the recent history and 
uh, just days gone by and stories that are uh, just too many to, to count of mm. people who had great opportunities, people who had great pedigrees and degrees and great uh, really talent, but they crashed and burned or they did not really live the life they were called to live because they did not manage themselves well. And that's, that's what the I factor is. And the message is really calling people to get healthy and to live their best life from the inside out because, Matt, success on any level is an inside job. Oh, yeah. And you've, you've got so much experience with it. You're a pastor of the Worship Center in Birmingham, Alabama. You're on Joel Osteen's um, Champions Network. You're on Dr. Oz's core team. You've, you've worked with John Maxwell. You're doing it all. You see this self-esteem. It's almost this, this just this lack of knowing who we are. In your book, I Factor— what what is the I factor? Sure, um, the I factor is how people think about themselves, feel about themselves, and even relate to themselves. The I factor is a combination of dynamics that converge to form the totality of a person's relationship with him or herself. When I talk about the I factor, a lot of people think, well, is it initially the same thing as self worth or self esteem or self respect? Uh, and I, I absolutely want people to understand that, that it goes beyond that. It goes beyond character and motives. It goes beyond a sense of self-esteem. But it has everything to do with the person's relationship with themselves. And it's really about managing yourself and your whole life well from the inside out. And so it is absolutely imperative that we make sure that our I factor is healthy because everything that we do flows out of whether or not we have a healthy or a negative I factor. Where do we where do we get this I factor? Are some born with it? Are they just naturally self believing, self directed, um, or do they? Is it is it how we're parented? How how do we come about this I factor? Well, everybody has it, but you know how your I factor is set up and how it evolves over time as you grow is really determined by a number of factors. It's the environment you were in, it's the kind of household that you were raised in, it's the experiences that you've had, and all of those things will either color our I factor for the better or continue us down a path of having a negative I factor. And so uh, in the book, one of the things that I help people to understand is regardless of where you are on your I factor journey, uh, the formula to having a successful and healthy I factor really revolves around three things. Your sense of identity, uh, your sense of significance, and your perspective. And so when you know who you are, and that's what I mean when I talk about your identity, that really fuels everything because your identity is the foundation of everything. When you understand your significance, then you take the next step when uh, because significance is about getting in touch with your purpose and the greatness for which you were created. But then the next big step is your perspective. Uh, perspective is about the set of lenses through which you look at life, because when you have a healthy perspective, you can view the problems you face as stepping stones for greatness instead of stumbling blocks. Hmm. And that's significant, Matt, because I wish that you know all of us could wave a magic wand and remove the challenges of life, but you and I both know that that's not possible. No. And so it is not about living a flawless or mistake-free life, but it is about being able to use those mistakes and hurdles and obstacles as stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. And that's all in your perspective. You can send two people through the exact same situation, and one of them will come out better 
while the other comes out bitter. And it has nothing to do with the situation and has everything to do with your perspective. Mm. Because uh, and that's that's a big one for people. Yeah. Well, and, and you can see, so, is this, so the lack of identity, the lack of understanding your significance or your purpose, or having a perspective that's a little warped, is that what leads to people that self-sabotage, people that don't try, that give up too early? Absolutely. Absolutely. The recipe uh, for a number of individuals that have uh, not fulfilled their purpose, that have self-sabotaged, that have not reached their dreams and their goals is all the same, regardless of whether they are a celebrity or whether they are a stay-at-home mom. What they do in terms of their station of life doesn't matter. The recipe uh, for that self-sabotage and those stumbling blocks are the same, and it's a lack of understanding who they are. It's a lack of having a great sense of significance, and it is not having the right perspective through which they look at the challenges that they've had to endure. It's not your position then, right? I mean, because you could be, I could see a, a woman that's raising her family, a housewife that that can feel like she knows her identity, she has a purpose, her perspective, and, and it creates a sense of power in her. I could also see someone in the same position um, and, they're, and they feel like they're not amounting to anything, they're not contributing. So I, I guess it doesn't matter your role, it matters really your how you're oriented. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the biggest things that I want people to understand about the I-Factor message, and I do my best in the book to really um, make it clear, because obviously I talk about celebrities that have suffered because of I-Factor issues, but then I also tell a number of stories uh, of regular everyday people who've also had the same struggles, because you're right, it has nothing to do with your position. And I, I want people to understand that, because the way that the world is set up is that the world informs us to really focus on our outside. And so, so many people go through life and they think that the measure of success has everything to do with their external position or their external station in life. Uh, but what I want people to understand is that you could have the best of position or you could have a fulfilling position, but your ability to navigate through it successfully has nothing to do with how much money you have and has nothing to do with the external factors that a lot of people in the world uh, focus on. It has everything to do with those internal dynamics. One of the stories that I'm most proud of and that I love to share when I talk about this I-Factor message is the story of the Titanic, because I think that the Titanic story is a great picture and antidote for how people um, approach life. You know, many of us know the Titanic. It was that majestic ship. It was decked out with uh, all of the finest luxuries that its travelers could have wanted at that time. It was a marvel of shipbuilding of that day. It was called unsinkable. But we know that the Titanic did sink because it hit an iceberg. And I did a lot of research on that iceberg, and it was about 600 feet long, but 500 feet of it was beneath the surface. Mm. So what I want people to understand is that what sunk the Titanic is not the little piece of the iceberg that they saw above the water. It was the enormity of the iceberg that they couldn't see beneath the water. And that's the same thing that sinks us in our own lives. So many people, Matt, go through life like the Titanic. We focus only on the external. But what ends up sinking and sabotaging our life are those underneath the surface uh, kind of unknown internal I-factor dynamics that a lot of times we don't focus on. And those are the things that determine whether we sink or swell through life. And so that's why the I-factor message is so important for children, for parents, for 
corporate CEOs, for college students, uh, any walk of life where you find yourself, this I-Factor message is a, is a necessary message. Yeah, and I can see um, it's necessary, and then I can almost hear as you're telling people that the solution is in you, as is the problem in you, um, it's I could see them, you know, revolting and being frustrated and saying, don't blame this problem on me. Let's uh, let's come back and talk about that. We're speaking with Van Moody, who is uh, he's a great inspiration. If you go to his website, vanmoody.org, um, you can get more information about the iFactor book and a lot of his other resources. Vanmoody.org, um, wonderful, uh, gifted speaker, helping us try to uncover how we contribute to a lot of our successes in life and how we can bring even more success out with the I-Factor. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show, joining us on the phone, Van Moody, author of the book I Factor, um, which basically says that the key to the life you want is inside you. You need to make some changes. You need to figure out your identity, your significance, and your perspective, and recognize that those three things are going to impact everything you do. Um, If you go to his website, vanmoody.org, you can get all the information about his other books, everything he's doing. Uh, Van, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, man, it's a joy to be with you. You're a busy man and a really, I think, special mission here that you're sharing with congregations all over, uh, really, the world and and readers all over the world. What do you say to the person who's already lacking probably some I factor, um, and then you're telling them, hey, it's in you, man, it's in you. I'm assuming you get some pushback. Like, don't blame me for my life. I had no parents at home, or I was raised in the inner city or whatever. What What do you say? Sure. One of the most important things that I want them to understand is that me calling attention to this issue of the I factor is not for blame, but it's for growth. And so you cannot conquer anything that you won't confront. And so when individuals say, well, you know, it's my my upbringing and it's the lack of things and access that I had, I want to challenge people to move beyond uh, blaming. I want them to move beyond excusing and let's confront it. Uh, and then let's confront it so that we can conquer it. The other thing that I want them to understand is that this message of the I factor and calling people to go inside first before they focus on the external is not an excuse to live a self-absorbed, selfish life. Mm. There are a lot of people who say, well, you know what, that's great because I'm just going to you know, focus on me and do life on my own terms. And I say, no, wait a minute. The whole point of the I factor message is to make sure that we adequately move through the two greatest tasks in life. The first task is to find yourself. And then the second great task of life is to lose yourself. The challenge for a lot of individuals is that we like to jump to that second task of losing ourselves and making a difference in the lives of others in whatever capacity, you know, that we're called. If it's motherhood, if it's uh, an area that we serve in corporate America, if it's giving back. But you cannot do that effectively without first finding yourself. And that's what the I-Factor message is about. Not about living a selfish, self-absorbed life, about making sure that first, internally, you're healthy, so that externally, you can make the difference. And let me tell you why this is so 
important that yeah. because we don't reproduce what we say. We only reproduce who we are. Mm. And that's important for people because I've met with a lot of frustrated individuals who say, you know, I'm telling my family that this is the way I want things to be or I'm trying to tell my employees that this is the way the company needs to run and it's not happening. And it's because the biggest message is you don't reproduce what you say. You only reproduce who you are. And so real lasting change is only going to come from the inside out. And so if we can get healthy internally, then it affects everybody that we do life with and that we're connected to. Yeah, that is powerful. Is it? Uh, how much of this comes from your influence uh, as a pastor and using the Bible? Well, it definitely comes from I mean, because you're, you're basically describing the law of the harvest, right? You reap what you sow. Absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. Absolutely. Well, it, you know, it's the law of the harvest, but it also is modeled by Jesus Christ. Yeah. When you think about all of the encounters that Jesus had with people, one of my favorite is when he goes to the house of Peter early on after uh, Peter kind of joins uh, uh, the group as a disciple. He goes to Peter's house, and Peter's mother is sick. And mm. Jesus kills her, and then she turns right around and begins to serve them. And you see that pattern. You see it with the demon-possessed man. You see it over and over and over again. Well, well, first the healing is internal, and then it flows into the external relationships that we have with others. And so that is that paradigm. I really believe that God wants people to get healthy internally first uh, because we are the common denominator in any and every relationship, in any and every encounter. And if we can be healthy first, then it does normally and naturally flow outward. Yeah. And I think that how we're going to change the world for the better and impact lives in a great way. In fact, there, there's a quote uh, somewhere, uh, the world tries to take the people out of the slums, God tries to take the slums out of the people. That's Absolutely. that inside-out approach you're talking about. Absolutely. And without the slums or the struggles or the challenges being held first, healed first internally, we'll take that wherever we go. Mm. That's such a great message, and especially um, this time of year, too, this time of season. And, and a lot of people are going to have maybe a week or two off, maybe a few days to think. Um, what would you suggest If are some of the things we can do today uh, to, to make sure we, we take hold of? I mean, go, go buy the book, The I Factor. What else can we do to get into our own identity, significance, and perspective? Sure. Well, obviously, you said it best. Go get the book, you know. Um, but then the other thing is, if they go to ifactorbook.com, there is a free assessment uh, that is really fun, um, not as intense as a Myers-Briggs or Disc Profile, but very similar in that they can take it in about five to seven minutes. It's absolutely free. And that will give people a, a great marker of where they are right, right now on the iFactor journey. And then, you know, once they get the book, uh, there are simple steps and lessons that I give them that over the holidays people can begin to walk through as they begin the year or just, you know, regular time as they are doing life and have a little bit of time to read or if they read before bed. Wherever they find themselves with the book, they can begin to take those simple steps. And one of the most important steps is to realize that their who is not their do. Uh, and that is really the first step to discovering your real identity. A lot of people get the, the why question, right, which is your purpose, which is, you know, why on earth am I here? I want to I live my best life, and I want to do it according to my purpose. But before you can answer the why question, you first got to answer the who question. And I talk about the importance of peeling the onion, because a lot of people, Matt, think that their identity 
is based on what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. And so the first step is to understand that your who is not your do. And in the book, I give simple steps to really get to the core of who you really are. And everything flows from there. Oh, I love it. Beautiful stuff. Van Moody is his name. Go check out the website, ifactorbook.com, where you can take that assessment and get started on that journey. Uh, before you can answer the why question, you've got to answer the who. Who are you? Why are you here on this earth? What are you here to do, to learn, to bring to this world? And are you doing it? Maybe that's one of the reasons happiness eludes us is because we don't know who we are. We don't, without knowing who we are, we don't know what to do, right? We don't know why we're doing certain things. Power. Power, the power of the I factor. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation who are gearing up for the big uh, bowl game tonight between BYU and Wyoming. Stick with us. We'll be right back. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, celebrating Festivus two days early because we won't be here on the actual day of Festivus. It's the day where you can air your grievances. It's the day that you can celebrate um, without having to, you know, purchase a lot of stuff. You just need a pole, an aluminum pole to set up in your living room. Don't dress it up. Don't hang ornaments. And I'm, I'm feeling the Festivus mood because I now get to go to my good friend's. Spencer and Jerem at Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, where they're basking in the sun, getting ready for the big bowl game tonight. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Here's the thing. It is is cloudy and a bit cool, and Uh, there is actually rain in the forecast for tonight. I have a sweatshirt on. What? Yeah. That's not supposed to happen. Come on. But we're here. We're here. This this is the side of so much history for BYU football. In fact, we're about... 20 yards uh, away from the end zone yeah. in BYU history, where the Hail Mary was, oh. ca- was caught, mm-hmm. thrown cool. by Jim McMahon, where Steve Young caught and scored the, pa- uh, the uh, halfback toss in 1983, where Kyle Van Noy wreaked havoc on two defensive touchdowns in the fourth quarter in 2012, and where in 1984 BYU won the national championship on a pass from Robbie Bosco to Kelly Smith. We are right here, which is awesome. And now today, BYU returns to the side of its most magical place outside of Provo, the home of BYU football, essentially in the postseason. San Diego, baby. Uh, game 13th day. bowl game in San Diego. This is huge. 13. That's crazy. Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. But I didn't know that history was, I didn't know that was all one stadium. That's amazing. One stadium and mostly one end zone, for that matter. How? Yeah, BYU's done a lot of the scoring. So, so in the same end zone, it's on the left on TV. Kay. The end zone on the left is where BYU scored some of its most... Uh, Historic touchdowns ever. I'm assuming you'll be talking about this on all of your shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there are four shows on BYU TV from uh, Qualcomm Stadium today. Mm. About three and a half hours of, of content. So we'll be live at the top of the hour, of course. 6 Eastern, another BYU Sports Nation live. Uh, then coming up at 8 Eastern, countdown to kickoff. Spencer Linton and uh, David Nixon will be here. Dave McCann, Blaine Fowler, Brian Logan in Studio C in Provo. And then the postgame show right after. Wow. Reaction. And then, of course, uh, BYU Sports Nation tomorrow will be uh, a recap of the bowl game with 
Jason Shepard and Blaine Fowler, but we'll have uh, a couple of hits we'll uh, send back for the guys tomorrow. Will, will you guys bring me back a churro or something? Uh, I don't know that it will taste very good by the time we mm, get it back, but yeah, if you'd good, like yeah. us to do that. Uh, no, let's do it. Uh, yeah. Let's just buy him one in Provo when we get back. I, I heard that. <laughs> yeah, we can. I heard that. Oh. you got to cover your microphone. Oh, this you cough button's not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, you got to fix your cough button. Right now. Oh, I can still hear you. Yeah, right there. Hey, um, how's it going to go tonight? <laughs> Who do you want to? I mean, of course, you're going to predict Brigham Young will win, right? They're a ten-point favorite. Mm. It's a big number. It's a big number. Which is yeah, it opened a, at seven and a half. So a lot of people think BYU is going to win this game. That's a pretty healthy number in favor of BYU and. BYU has not lost a game in which it has been favored this season. Mm. That's a that's a stat so, to remember. Right? Yeah, that's uh, favorable for the Cougars. They have only Favor- lost games, yes, that uh, they were not favored in. So, I like BYU's chances. Wyoming has been really good at home in Laramie, not so much away. I, I from look Laramie. around and I don't see Laramie, so I really like BYU. Yeah, chances. you're not in. La- yeah, you see the ocean right there. No, we. I wish. We were yeah. Well, I mean, you, I mean, just you got to get at the top of the stadium. We're inland. Yeah. Hey, talk to me about <laughs> this. Talk to me about um, any surprises. Do you think? Do you think Tanner Mangum's going to hold up? Is he going to come out? Are we going to end this game in a hail mary pass as he's known to do? Hopefully not. I don't think BYU will require a hail mary to win this game. I think Wyoming. Leave Mary out of this. We'll mary. Give BYU a fair Save challenge that for Sunday. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, tonight features uh, some dynamic ru- uh, runners. Jamal Williams has only played against three non-Power 5 teams. He's averaging 140 in those games, seven yards a carry. Wyoming, uh, Brian Hill has 1,700 yards. He's the only dude in, in America that has 20 or more touchdowns and 1,700 or more rushing yards. He's really mm, good man. when he's running back. Yeah. So it's going to be a fun matchup. So Tanner Mangum might be the the uh, Y factor, if you will, mm-hmm. in that he can create a different dimension passing the rock. But if Jamal Williams can't run the ball, BYU's going to be in trouble. It's called the Jamal fence. That's what BYU has offensively. <laughs> the Jamal fence. is uh, This is Kalani's first big uh, head coaching bowl game, right? So this is his first time as a head coach. That's right. Is, is he filling yeah, up? Yeah, I mean, he's been involved in... Yeah, he's been involved in several bowl games as an assistant, but this is this is bowl game number one for him as a head coach. I don't think he is treating this game any differently than he has all of the other twelve games that he's coached at BYU. It's I mean once once they get here and, and the game's about it's they all think it's the same. You know, right. the preparation leading up to the bowl game is different, but it's it's the same once the game starts. Just, hey, we're going to go out and compete. We're going to play hard. We want to win. Wyoming's well. hungry. They uh, l- Literally, they're at breakfast probably right now. They won two games last year, and here they are this year, 8-5. and five. They competed for the um, in the Mountain West Conference title game at home. They're an excited bunch. Yesterday at the luncheon aboard the uh, USS Midway, uh, they're stoked. BYU's been to 12 straight bowl games, although a little different now. You're, you're right, Matt, with first year of Kalani Satake, so We'll see how BYU comes out in this in this game, and there's three weeks off from mm. the last game, and so it's going to be fun. Old Mountain West, whack rivals. So yeah. We'll see how this plays out tonight. I, I like BYU's chances in this game a lot. That's so cool. Both teams create a lot of turnovers, top ten in that category. Wyoming's offense is good. The defense kind of struggles. So it's we'll going see to how be this plays out. fun. Um, talk about your show, what, what's coming up on your show, and uh, and then we'll let you go get ready. 
We've got a couple of fantastic guests, including the director of the bowl game, Mark Neville. He'll talk to us uh, about what went into putting BYU and Wyoming together and what what life is like for him once they finally get to game day. You know, his life has been crazy leading up to that. So uh, some insight from the guy behind the scenes. And we have one of BYU's bowl game heroes with us, K.O. Kayla Louie, who 20 years ago caught the game-winning touchdown pass in the Cotton Bowl. In the Cotton Bowl. Mm. BYU ranked fifth, beat Kansas State, and finished in the top five that year. Oh, those were the days. Just kidding. That's cool. You guys, that's a great show, <laughs> and it's an easy, it's an easy, um, it's an easy, it's an easy start for you guys because you got a big day today. I know you do. Oh, we we start with you. I know. That's, well, that's the first thing we have kicked it's, off. It's our postum. Yeah, We've kicked off with Matt Townsend, <laughs> and then uh, the first quarter will be BYU Sports Nation here shortly, and then uh, second quarter is BYU Sports Nation at three Pacific time, six Eastern. But we'll defer to the second half. So then we get the ball at eight Eastern. We're countdown to kickoff. Yeah, and then, and then the, the post game show. That's the fourth quarter. And then we'll we'll do some more after the post game show. Yeah. And then you're you're probably okay, that's you, a celebration. Then you'll have to fly home tonight to get here to do your your show tomorrow, right? Nope. Jason, Jason and Blaine have got nope. it. Nope. Yep. Okay. Jason Shepard. I'm going. To, I'm going Blaine to Disneyland Fowler. with fan tomorrow. Oh, you're loving it. Okay, that's what your family deserves. Yeah. A little daddy time. Well, guys, have a great show. We'll be watching all day. Keep up the great work. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Peace Matt. out. Don't embarrass us. Make us make us proud. Make us proud. Of course they will. Well, that's a lot of that's a lot of time. They got a lot of production to do today. But how cool the energy of a bowl game. You gotta love it. Meanwhile, we sit back here in uh, you know in the shadows of the everlasting hills. <laughs> Why'd you laugh at that, Jeffrey? Isn't that the intro to music and the spoken word? Yeah, it is. Just throwing that From out. From within the shadows of the everlasting hills. May peace be with you this day and always. Ah. Hey, uh, let me give you a couple stories uh, for the thieves out there. The bad boys section of the show. Um, still, we've got people that are trying to create some bad spirits during uh, the holidays. There's a Rogaine thief. you got to watch out for him. A 36-year-old Florida man pled guilty Tuesday to stealing Rogaine from drugstores all over Ohio. He was apparently uh, taking, he wasn't taking it for his own use. He's been dubbed the Balding Bandit. Andre Arias would fly from Florida to Ohio, rent a car, drive to various CVSs and Walgreens, hide Rogaine, as well as dietary supplements and weight loss drugs in his pants. Then he would ship them to New Jersey for payment. Arias was sentenced uh, to uh, two years in prison and $22,000 in restitution and racketeering. His lawyer says he is remorseful, but still balding. <sighs> That's sad. I feel like he was, yeah. I, I, he's gone too soon. He's, he's uh, here today and gone tomorrow. Great Arrested point. tomorrow. <laughs> Great point, Jeffrey. Um, an employee gives cash... Uh, uh, given cash to deposit, then vanishes. Okay, so uh, a Ben Salem, New Jersey police department is asking for the public's help locating a man that's accused of theft. Kevin Van Allen is wanted by police after failing to deposit a large sum of money from his work and then quitting the next day via email. You know, so they're doing all the receipts for their their uh, their revenues of one day, they hand it over to this Kevin guy. He is supposed to go deposit it in the bank, but he never made the deposit. And then the next day, he quits his job through an email. 
Like, what's he thinking? He I don't know. He didn't want to be fired? When I when I steal all the office supplies here at BYU Radio, I'm not going to tell them I quit the next day. I'm just not going to show up. Now, is this something you're planning? No, it's hypothetical. Well, you didn't... Just hypothetical. Well, yeah, yeah, but you didn't say it hypothetically. You didn't say that. Didn't you see my air quotes? No. And I'm oh. sitting right in front of you. Hmm. Anyway, security. I'd watch out for Jeffrey. Hey, uh, one last story. It's our hero story of the day. Off-duty firefighter senses something is wrong at a restaurant. Ends up saving 30 people's lives. Come on. How cool is this? Off-duty firefighter Lonnie Wimmer was at dinner with friends Saturday night. When he looked around the table, realized something wasn't quite right. Guests were starting to feel nauseous, complaining about headaches. And some were even starting to feel chest pain after spending nearly an hour and a half in the River Ridge Tap House restaurant in North Carolina. The first thought that came to Wimmer's mind, carbon monoxide. So the firefighter at Louisville Fire Department called the fire station, asked them to come to the restaurant as soon as possible. Sure enough, Wimmer was right. At least 12 fire officials responded to the call. And when they arrived, they found out the level of CO inside the restaurant was off the chart. The EMTs evaluated more than 30 people. 16 were transferred to local hospitals with symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. And this uh, silent killer did not take anyone's life, thanks to Lonnie Wimmer. One hero, folks, doing what he could do. Remember, firefighter, he might have been better trained than the rest of us. And yet uh, he did what he could do. Called in the friends, and they saved everybody's life. So, Lonnie, you're the hero of the day. Folks, you don't have to be a firefighter to save a life. Sometimes you just need to be paying attention to what's going on around you. So tune it up. Let's do it. We've got uh, the holidays coming up. A lot of people need some attention. Let's step out of our uh, comfort zone and go make that happen. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk again tomorrow.